Recorded live. First of all, I want to say uh, to all those who have been affected, uh, whether it be through direct action, through family or friends with what's going on in Paris, uh, my thoughts, my prayers, and uh, all the possible positive energy I can possibly send is going in that direction. So uh, we, we often come to sports as an escape from certain things, and some people get upset when things go on like at Missouri or uh, you know, when people like Brittany Griner or, or Michael Sam step forward and simply by the fact of being who they are, uh, change the game, for lack of a way of putting it. And sometimes people, like I said, react negatively to that. We're reminded on days like today that no matter what happens, who wins, who loses, who gets hurt, who whatever, there is a line of demarcation between the world of sports and uh, the world. And the two do collide at times. But I am, like I said, wanting to make very clear that I, I celebrate just how much simpler, usually, the world of sports is than the, the world in general. And I want to welcome a very special guest, Kent Lee Platt, a.k.a. at Math Bomb. And you have one of the coolest uh, avatars, icons out there. I, I have to tell us what you found in a moment. And I'm also joined by my uh, other metrics Merlin, Mr. Jimmy Jam, James Coburn. How are you doing, Jim? Uh, pretty good. Okay. So I know a little bit about your story, James, how you how you came to the wonderful world of metrics. And I asked Kent to tell us a little bit how he got interested in this and then what his approach is. Well, it's I, I, I've always loved football. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of your listeners agree with that part at least. Um, but I've also loved math, and that's kind of a silly thing to, to hang on to. Um, but whenever the draft would come around and we'd have the combine and you'd, you'd be talking to that, you know, about the combine with people, a lot of things didn't really have any meaning to a lame. If you tell somebody that, oh, I, can you believe it, this, this linebacker ran a four five five, you know, they're not going to know what that means in general. It, you're saying it with energy, so they're assuming that it's a good thing. Um, <laughs> but what I just, what I tried to do was, it was try to come up with a way that, we could look at metrics like that and put it in a context where it actually means something. Um, I build, started building out my RAS metric a couple of years ago, which is a relative athletic score, a relative ability score. Um, and, and basically what it does is it takes every player from a position and it compares them against each other. It looks at the average. It looks at how far a player is from the average. Um, for those math geeks out there, it's similar to how standard deviation works. It's not yep. quite the same because I wanted to make it on a, a scale from 0 to 10, and I wanted to make it so that it was, it was actually a sliding scale. Um, but it's it's a similar concept. It just looks at where things are. So now if you tell somebody, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, this guy got a you know 9, that's much more understandable for somebody who's not really familiar with how this stuff works. Excellent. Excellent. Uh- I'm not a metrics person in the classic sense, but I have tried to more, I mean, you know, first running across the KEI, the Kerwin Explosivity Index, and some other stuff even years ago. Most of it was, for lack of a better way, flawed, but it was an attempt. And some things seemed, you know, fairly solid, though inconsistent, and other things seemed to be 
you know, for lack of putting it, not very helpful. Uh, Jim, Jim, James, uh, you have a an approach as well, though. I don't know if it's. I, mean, I don't know what you know how the two of you compare, and I don't know how much you guys have looked at each other's stuff. But when you talk hear about his uh, relative uh, uh, ability score and you know Pat Curran's KEI and things like that. As compared to what you do, Jim, um, what is your goal when you sit down with a huge bunch of numbers and sort through them, and, and what is it you're looking to find? It's pretty much kind of the same thing uh, for the most part. I mean, I I look at three types of athleticism, um, which is really – which is relative to peers, which is similar in that way. And I just use it to kind of find skill sets because – one of the things I found is that at various positions, wide receiver, running back, offensive line, um, whatever the position is for the most part, uh, different types of athletes have different types of success outcomes, have different types of uh, schemes they fit in, which is the best way to explain this is that most man corners, guys have been really successful in man schemes have been guys that run faster than the average which makes sense, you know, and uh, there's also data showing that zone corners, guys who don't necessarily run faster than the average that much, guys who run four, five, uh, four, five, six, which really is above average in most of the cases, which I think is kind of funny, but it's usually above average in those cases. It's just that they're not exactly four, 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 three type guys. Those guys typically do better when they also have get short shell three cones, shells with, you know, hip flexibility, ankle flexibility. Uh, so I just look at – I look at it from, you know, comparing guys to their peers uh, using uh, explosive testing, speed testing, and dynamic speed testing, which is the short shell three cone and the 40-yard dash. And I just kind of look to see what type of athlete these guys are. And then after I figure out what type of athlete they are, see if what – they do on film matches with the type of athlete that they, you know, say they are on tape, I guess. So if a guy is, uh, is a, if a guy wins with speed or if he tests similar to so-and-so player, I'll go back and watch so-and-so player or in the numerous other types of athletes that have that similar skill set and see if they are closer to that or if they're closer to a different extreme because there's many cases where uh, certain athletes, uh, there's like Jackie Battle, right? Jackie Battle was an incredible athlete, but obviously he didn't become uh, what his athleticism testing said he was supposed to become, at least, if, if people just look at success outcomes based on that. So you kind of look at that. And I also do the production metric side of things in terms of, you know, market share defensive statistics, market share, offensive statistics. And then, of course, also do a little bit of age metrics, but not a ton, but just knowing the range of probabilities when it comes to when a player declares, at what age they declare, what that says about their ultimate upside, that sort of stuff. Well, in general, people tend to always assume younger is better. And, I guess there's a certain amount of truth to that, but if you look at the extremes, the youngest players ever to enter the draft, they usually haven't done all that well. Amobi Okoye was, what, 20 years and seven months or something like that? 
Oh, I mean, he was very young, but you also have to understand that it's it's a range of possibilities in, in the sense that the term prodigy is sort of a real thing mm-hmm. and that right. if a guy is producing at an elite level at a younger age, that says a lot, but at the same time, just because you're it's, – it's one variable amongst many variables is all I'm trying to say. So right, just because right. you're a young player doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be this prodigy player. You have to be producing like a prodigy and be at that age. And Amor Yacoye was, was one hell of an athlete, too. He wasn't just, he wasn't just oh, yeah, he a was. young player. He was a great athlete. He measured extremely yeah. well. The, the only metrics that he measured below average in were, was his size, and even then it was only just. Yeah, I remember relatively kind of short-ish. Right. I mean, Sap-ish. I mean, I mean, that was one of the people he got compared to coming up was Warren Sapp, who I don't know. I can't remember what Warren Sapp's exact combine measurements were, but I've stood close to the man at the Super Bowl years ago, and if he's six feet tall, he's just made six feet tall. My guess would be he's probably maybe a tiny bit under six feet tall. But He's obviously a very explosive athlete. I mean, Warren Sapp was a guy who was a you know tight end in high school, and you know, like I said, I always told people, you want to get Warren Sapp talking, go talk defense with him. Talk about, ask him about his exploits as a tight end, and he will never stop talking. Well, let oh, me sure. Ask, I guess I guess I'll ask each of you this. Oh, yeah. Is there? I'll, I'll start with Kent. Is there a? I'll start. Okay, let's just. Okay, we're going to talk wide receivers. Everyone plays in the 40s because 40s are easy to understand and sexy and, you know, it's treated like the Super Bowl of athletic events in the football world. Eliminating the 40 from our discussion, if you're looking at wide receivers and the ones that have had the greatest amount of success in the time that you've studied, what's the next thing? What's the other thing? Or what's the thing you found other than 40s that have been the most indicative of probability of success? You know, it really depends on the type of receiver that it is. Um, sure. but, you know, obviously, yeah, 40 is always the big one. Uh, the vert and the broad are always going to be the next one that you look at for a wide receiver. The ability to, to burst off of the line and, and escape from the line of scrimmage, that's something that, that teams really look for, whether it's a small receiver or a larger receiver. Um, you know, the the Calvin Johnson comparisons that people always get, he, and on top of being as huge as Calvin Johnson was, he had that ridiculous <laughs> vert jump at the time and a great broad. Yep. He, he was measured, actually, in my metric, he was the highest rated receiver, and I'm sure there's a lot of metrics where he's the highest rated receiver. <laughs> um, but you look to that a lot. Whenever you have a, a receiver coming out, you want to see whether or not they can jump. And, you know, part of that makes sense because, yeah, you know, they're going to do some jumping while they're out there at receiver. Um, but... On, on top of that, it's about how they can burst off and how they can actually accelerate, which, you know, that's part of how you jump. Sure. Right. I mean, that is the sort of the ultimate in acceleration. You're actually defeating gravity. Right. At least temporarily. Um, yeah. When you have those smaller receivers, though, the ones that that rely on their route running and, and uh, causing separation in different ways, you, you tend to look at those agility metrics, your shuttle and your three cone, um, to try to see whether that's something that stands out for them. Um, and if you have a big receiver that measures well in the three cone and the shuttle, then, then that's even better. And I remember Julio Jones, when he was coming out, that was one of the things that people really latched onto was he had right. a tremendous three cone for, for his size. 
And if you've got a, a big guy that's able to move that, that quick, that nimbly, then, then yeah, you've, you've got something there. That's something that you're going to pay attention to. Sure. Uh, same question to you, Jim. In, you know, once, if we're not staring at the 40 like we always do, what's the next thing you gravitate towards when you're looking at wide receivers? Oh, it's pretty much the same thing. Explosiveness. See, we're seeing eye to eye most of the stuff. Uh, vertical, <laughs> broad jump. Uh, you know, measuring it, it, the ability to explode um, out of your stance, which is really important. Uh, which is kind of, you know, what Revis had some issues with against, uh, you know, Sammy Watkins a little bit, not a ton, but just a little bit. Uh, it's not as explosive, but you have that, and of course the dynamic dude, which of course short shoulders and three cone um, with the uh, with the 40-yard uh, dash uh, are things that you kind of look for in those instances. A lot of times athletic metrics are uh, more descriptive than predictive, um, which is just to say that if a guy had – like there's different types of wide receivers. There's, there's certain wide receivers that have really good explosion numbers and really good speed numbers but don't have very good uh, short shell three-cone numbers who end up being – good players. Des Bryant was one of those types of players. Extremely explosive player for his size, really above above average speed for his size as well. Um, and a lot of ways that he wins is by being the bigger man, going up and getting the football that sort of way. And then you also have other wide receivers that we've seen like, you know, uh, you know, A.J. Green, Alshon Jeffrey, uh, Brandon LaFell, Brian Hartline, uh, guys that don't necessarily, even Stevie Johnson, a guy like Stevie Johnson, who may not be the most explosive player, the fastest player, uh, but does have that sort of uh, hip flexibility, ankle flexibility, and body control, and, and also with the routes to kind of do that sort of stuff. So um, I, I would just say in terms of athletic metrics, it really just depends on what type of wide receiver you're getting in terms of the type of athlete you're getting, and then that kind of gives you a perspective you know, like I said before, if a guy tests like a certain type of player, you get to go back and see if that if things match up that way. One example was, you know, Kevin White in this last draft class uh, tested strikingly similar to Larry Fitzgerald in terms of every single sort of metric, except, of course, for age and, and also market share sort of stuff. And then when you go back and watch the tape, you do see differences in terms of uh, the refinement in terms of routes and releases and those sorts of things. Uh, but it, again, it all just gives you a framework, a context to kind of view these types of players so that it can help you to possibly understand um, how they win and how they how they win and how they do certain things like that. But don't get it twisted, man. There are certain players like Steve Smith who are short but are really explosive really fast. And when you think about how they've become who they've become, there's not very many of these types of guys, of course. But there are you do have occasionally the the uh the bully type short wide receiver types that do come up every now and then. Um and Golden Tate's another really good example of that. Golden and Golden Tate, Tate as well. Um, yeah. It, as much as you would have expected him to have a great three cone and a great shuttle time, he actually had a worse three cone than Des Bryant did. Um but you never you would never guess that if you were watching both of them on tape. Yep, exactly. Now, 
I know that you, Jim, do a lot of cross-checking, you know, with looking at the numbers and then looking back at the tape and things like that. And, you know, one thing people always say is, I say it, we all say it, scouts say it. Well, this guy plays bigger. He plays faster. He plays quicker. He plays whatever it is, plays more explosive. I mean, Antonio Brown's a great example, right? Antonio Brown was a six-rounder partially because he went to Central Michigan, partially because he's not the biggest cat in the world, but partially because his pro day numbers are bleh, you know? I mean, not terrible, but nothing to write home about. You know, four, five, seven, forty. you know, his vertical was, you know, it was like 35 or 34 and a half or something like that. I mean, sort of dead dead average in, in a bunch he of different He actually has the lowest, the lowest broad jump of all the receivers that I measured. Right, his broad jump was nothing right. Nothing, there's nothing that jumps out at you and says, "Whoa, this guy's gonna be a killer," except his tape, <laughs> which I was telling everybody in the world. It's like, okay, dude, remember how I was bothering everybody about Greg Jennings? I used to really bother people about Greg Jennings because you know, this guy's gonna be great. Just listen to me. You know, I'm, I apologize to all those people that I, you know, bothered about Greg Jennings. But then Antonio Brown came along, and it was as bad or worse because. You know, he comes along to this, this system and, and Daniel Seaver's out there and, you know, getting a certain amount of attention. And he's a decent player. But I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, Daniel Seaver, yeah, yeah. But the guy's throwing the ball, too. You know, could you, could you look at him? And Antonio Brown was a high school quarterback. Uh, one of those things that, you know, I, I, I'm saying that I, it always makes you – I mean, you look – scouts look for it. Scouts look for team captain, high school quarterback, whatever. Those are these things because it tells you – at least two things, accountability, intelligence, and then to a certain extent, you know, hopefully, uh, sort of a football IQ comes along. Uh, but you have this Antonio Brown character whose numbers are just bleh, you know, right? I mean, pretty much across the board, but he's a stone-cold killer on the football field. Now, I know, Jim, like I said, you like to do a lot of cross-checking. Kent, do you study the outliers when a guy outperforms what, you know, like what I call the bumblebee perplex, you know, Supposedly the bubble, you know, engineers say it's supposedly a bumblebee is an aerodynamic enough to fly, whatever. Sort of like, do you look at those guys and try to figure out how they are beating the system? You do. I mean, most of the time when you're when you get the metrics in, when the combine happens or the pro days happen, you're just confirming what you already know, looking at the tape. You know, using right. Kevin White as an example. Uh, Kevin White was a, a fantastic athlete, and it showed up every time that he was on tape. You you saw that every time you looked at it. Um, you had other people like Quandre Diggs at University of Texas who, you know, had a lot of really good things, a lot of really good tape, but you could tell that he wasn't fast and he wasn't a quick twitch guy. You could see that, and you really confirmed that with his poor metrics when he when he actually measured. Um, but when you have a guy who really outperforms, you know, Dontari Poe is a great example because he, he was just a guy on tape. He was okay. You really didn't pay attention to the athleticism because he just wasn't that great of a player. Um, once he destroyed the combine and ruined it for everybody, uh, <laughs> you went back to the tape and you watched it and you saw, you didn't see that dominant player that he's turned into now, but you did see moments where he was just too fast. He was just too quick. There was just no way that people could even get to him. Uh, Aaron Donald's another great example of that. You know, his, He blew up his, his tape quite a bit more than Poe did, um, but there were a lot of times where there was just nothing that any defender could or any lineman could have done to defend against him. He was just too quick for them to do anything about. Um, and actually, Donald's one of the few players that I went back because I knew he was going to have metrics, and he had better metrics than I thought he was going to do. Um, Bud Dupree was another one last year. I knew that he was going to measure well at the combine. I didn't think he was going to destroy the combine the way that he did. 
Uh, you go back to the tape and you look, you know, is, is this how he's winning? Is he, is he just winning based on athleticism? Uh, Ziggy Anso, who plays for the Lions, is a great example of that. He, he won only by athleticism. The guy had no actual football skill, and he was right. just a better athlete than everybody by such a wide margin. You know, you go back to the tape and you, you try to see, is that how they're winning? Um, and it's, it's really, it is, it is about going back and, and, you know, rechecking and that stuff. But a lot of it's just confirming things. You, you, you want to go back and you say, you know, did he really play, you know, at a four or five speed? Is he really that fast on tape? Or is it just likely that he's a workout warrior who just worked himself up so he can get into the combine and get a good number to get his, get his stock up? Um, it, you have moments where you see guys that, that you didn't realize it the first time around. Got it. Uh, similar question, or I guess a, a variation on the question, Jim. There are guys who, like I said, beat the system. When I say beat the system, I mean, you know, we all bring up the Zach Thomases of the world. Or the, it, Brian Cox leaps to mind. Obviously, that's a little before probably either of your times. But I love Brian Cox. Saw him play in person a couple times, and then he had a, a flat out horrendous pro day. Ran about five flat. Did about eighteen bench reps. I mean, just nothing. There was nothing to hang your hat on. I mean, his his three cone was uh, was decent, uh, but I mean, most of his numbers were were somewhere between average and flat out ugly. And so, you know, all the people I was talking to about Brian Cox were like, "Okay, nice job on Brian Cox," you know. <laughs> and, um, and at the same time, in the MAC, John Offerdahl, uh was was around, you know doing what he was doing, and he was a slightly better athlete. And so, you know, people were like, dude, you're talking about the wrong Mac linebacker. Look at this John Offerdahl kid. And uh, John Offerdahl had a decent career as well. But uh, I think it's been proven out that Brian Cox long-term was, and still is, you know, associated in the least uh, coach, but had the better career and longer career. There's Zach Thomas and all those guys. So his numbers, now actually his numbers aren't that bad. But it, they weren't great numbers, looking for a smaller mm. linebacker. I guess but you could say that if you want. I mean, his were workout numbers were not, were not right, exactly. They weren't amazing. And especially, like I said, we're smaller line. People want Dexter Coker numbers, you know, from undersized linebackers. He was nothing close to that, I guess is what I would say. There's, there's something obvious in person. Both of you guys. Uh, now, I don't know, Kent, do you deal with production at all? Do you look at that production metrics also? I do. Um, not at first, though. I usually only go only do the production stuff towards the end of my evaluations. You, you, you want to look at, you know, how they measure and things like that. The production stuff is more, uh, you usually get an, a good idea of what their production is after you watch the tape. And sometimes you get some surprises. I remember watching uh, Devin Taylor, um, who's another guy on the Lions, and he measured fantastic. He had great measurements right up right up there with uh, close to Jadavian Clowney, if I think well. But, uh, you know, he didn't really do anything on tape, and I think he had only a couple of sacks when he was at, at, at South Carolina. I remember being surprised. Yeah, even though he had everybody that. was sliding protection away from him and towards Clowney. Right. right. And I remember being surprised that he even had that much when I, when I looked at his production because he, even though he had such great athleticism and you could see that on tape, he, the guy acted like he had no arms, and when you're a huge defensive line, lineman like that, and with all those arms, arms that he had, I mean, like some of the longest <laughs> arms I've ever seen. 
Right, and and it didn't it didn't show up on tape at all, and I was amazed when I went back and saw that he oh he actually got a couple in there, um, <laughs> you know. But receivers are always the big ones. You know, you go back and look at a receiver that you think is going to do really well. Sometimes you'll get you just blown out at, at what kind of production they have, and then you have guys like Odell Beckham where you're just like, how how did that how did that come out of it? Is your quarterback really that bad? Is that what happened? <laughs> They had some pretty spotty quarterback play in LSU land. I mean, obviously, Mettenberger was, I guess, as good as it gets uh, it post, post Jamarcus. Now, that's actually one of the things I want to talk about. A lot of, you know, the old singer versus the song argument is the wide receiver making the quarterback, the quarterback making the wide receiver, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it was one of the things that I used to bring up when people would, you know, tear into um, – Logan Thomas. Now, Logan Thomas, you know, obviously is a guy who's a project and has some mechanical issues and not incredible accuracy. I'm not, I'm not an idiot. I can like a guy and know, you know, what his strengths and weaknesses are. But he also, I, I, did, I don't chart drop. I mean, I chart games. But I, didn't, I didn't look at drops for like an entire season. But I didn't see a single game where he didn't have at least four, like, bad, not borderline, like, tough. I mean, like, bad ball hits hit you right in the hand drop from his receivers in each game. And then by the same token, you can also have, you know, quarterbacks who have receivers, you know, you know, the Allen Robinson situation with Hackenberg or whatever, where who knows how many drops he saved Hackenberg, but a significant number, uh, I guess is what, what I would say. When you're looking at quarterback play and wide receiver play, I guess, do you – I hear people throwing around words about off-target and on-target and – you know, catchable versus non-catchable. Now, I see guys catch balls that shouldn't be that quote unquote aren't catchable. So I don't know how that works. But uh, and can't uh, is that something you even bother trying to to figure out, or do you just figure out if a guy is looking? Hey, he caught or he didn't. Yeah, you know, it, it depends on the it depends on the situation. But a lot of times, you you can tell you can tell pretty much right away. Um, I remember when Manziel and Mike Evans came out. That was the whole big argument, and it. it it isn't, you know, it's always going to be the receiver. It's always going to be the quarterback. It really does depend on the player. Um, but when you have a quarterback that's scrambling all the time and he throws to his receiver who has to get open and that's really not his game and he makes every catch and doesn't drop anything, which is kind of ironic considering he went broke, what, five or six passes this past week Mike Evans did. Um, but in college, that wasn't the case. He didn't drop anything. He only had a couple of drops his whole college career. Um, so you have you have situations where it's very much clearly one player over the other one, um, and and you just got to kind of dig dig out what that situation is and why that situation is. Um, going back to Mike Evans' example, one of the things that he did well, people always said, oh, well, most of his most of his catches came on comeback routes. You know, almost all of his he had a huge majority of his catches were comeback yards. A huge amount of his yardage and catches were. Um, but, yeah, a lot of that was because he had to pay attention to what his quarterback was doing, running around there like a crazy person, and he had to react to the defense. So he was reading the defense when he got off the line. He was reading the defense as he dropped into his zone, and then he was reading where his stupid quarterback was running to and where he could get open. That's a, that's a plus skill, even though it's something reactionary. It's not something you normally have to look at. Um, another good example uh, from a quarterback standpoint, anyway, um, would be Marcus Mariota, who – he didn't have terrible targets at Oregon, but he didn't have great targets by any measure when he was throwing there. And a lot of times he had to put the ball in very specific spots for them to get it. Um, actually, if you want an even better example, Connor Cook. 
Uh, Connor Cook gets gets uh, hit on a lot because of his low uh, completion percentage, but he's not throwing to wide open receivers all the time. There's nothing schematic that gets his guys open. His receivers have to beat man coverage. They have to find a good spot in the zone. Sometimes he has to throw to a very specific spot, and in general, he's able to. Um, that's when you really start looking at okay, it's not just the receiver getting you know bailing out his quarterback every time, but sometimes that quarterback is putting the ball somewhere that it, only the receiver can get to. Uh, I guess pretty much the same question. First of all, do you try when you're work, looking at quarterbacks and wide receivers? Do you try to figure out quote unquote whose fault it is? You know, if a if, there, if if a ball isn't caught or things like that. And secondarily, you know, you know the follow up, whatever is, do have do you have you found? Like you just played out with sort of Manziel Evans. Have you found any sort of really identifiable cases of? either a wide receiver bailing out a quarterback consistently or vice versa, a receiver who's getting a lot of attention but whose quarterback is doing some extraordinary things to get the ball to him. I mean, are there cases like that in the data? Sure. But they don't affect things to an extreme. Like, they don't affect things enough to really make it worth really tracking I mean, if you're somebody who's watching a wide receiver on tape, looking for technique, looking for different sort of stuff like that, does it really matter if the quarterback is Peyton Manning or if the quarterback is this or that? You're just focusing on that specific wide receiver. Um, And a lot of times if you're just – I mean, if you're just basing all of your evaluation on how they produced and stuff like that, sure, you're probably going to miss on a lot of players. But if you are basing it off of what you see on the film – and stuff like I mean, like it's basically like this, and I've I've told you this before, Bill. Uh, the quarterback that threw to Calvin Johnson is not in the NFL anymore. Uh, the quarterback no, that threw no, none none of the guys who threw balls to him in college were NFL type guys. Uh, they I remember those quarterbacks quite clearly. One of whom is a coach, and the other one became a backup in Canada for a little while, and now I think is out of football altogether. Exactly. Uh, I mean, yeah, Reggie Ball and 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 George Godsey are not guys they'll be getting into the pro or college football hall of fame for that matter. Not really, not really. But we're not evaluating them. We're evaluating this specific player. <laughs> so right. that that's my only point. Is I understand people want to say it's the chicken created the egg and all that. You either did what you did on tape or on paper, or you didn't, and you're comparing this. I mean, you're basically putting all the wide receivers on paper with everything they did, and then looking at what the correlations show you. There's going to be breakpoints of those correlations, so gay. But I don't think you should really. I didn't find the quarterback because the quality of quarterback really was a detriment, or affected things to such an extreme amount that we have to pay attention to that 100%. So I guess that's all I would really say, because you're evaluating these players on who they are as individuals. As long as you're doing that, you're fine, I think, at least to me. You know? So, like, Johnny Manziel could have been created by Mike Evans. Then again, maybe not. You know, maybe they both benefited from each other. You know, why can't it be that way? So it, when you get into the whole who created who and this and that, I just think that gets a little silly at times, I guess. 
Sure. I mean, there has been no great quarterback who didn't have somewhere between good and great wide receivers. I mean, Joe Montana is on some people's, at the top of some people's list of greatest wide receiver of all time. Is it a coincidence that he threw to a whole yeah, bunch one of, of the really greatest wide receivers of all time? <laughs> yep. And forget, forget, let's take him out of the list. Look at the other, the quote-unquote other guys he threw to his career. Freddie Solomon, not exactly trash. Uh, Brent Jones, one of the best receiving tight ends of his era. Roger Craig and Ricky Waters, though more Craig than Waters. Waters came towards the end of his career, but or with the 49ers at least. And then he threw to Marcus Allen, not too shabby once he got to um, no. Kansas City. Uh, John Taylor was one of the best number two receivers in, in football for about a six-year period. He threw to a lot of really good, and even if early in his career when they weren't this juggernaut, you know, Bill Ring and, and Cecil Cooper and guys like that were really good at catching the football. Now, partially because Bill Walsh prized having guys who catch the football. Tom Rathman, I mean, he wanted everybody, whether it be the fullback, the tight end, the, the quote-unquote blocking tight end, uh, everybody could catch the football. You know, if you're going to play for Bill Walsh, you could all everybody who's going to be a quote-unquote skilled position player could catch the football. He didn't abide by non-football catchers anywhere on his depth chart on uh, among skill position guys. And then, like I said, he lands in Kansas City, and though he has a drop off, there's no Jerry Rice coming through the door once you get to Kansas City. But he had Johnny Morton. He had a few other cats who could definitely catch the football. Uh, I'll jump. I'll go to Jim, and then I'll jump, jump to Kent. When you're looking at production metrics for receivers, which ones? I'm sure which ones matter. But how do you stack them? Where do you give priority? I mean, is it production in terms of numbers of catches? Is it yards per reception? I mean, because there's some systems that prize, you know, distance. You know, like we all we've all sort of figured out that they the PFF quarterback rankings are very slanted towards yards per attempt. They, that's why, you know, sometimes there's some head scratchers in there when, you know, you see, well, why is, you know, Blake Bortles eight notches above Aaron Rodgers or whatever um, in some of their rankings. You soon well, realize, because okay, Aaron well, Rodgers, you know, threw a screen pass or a wide receiver and he did all the work. Right, yeah. They're big into, like, that's, the air yards. that's stuff, sort yeah. of their – the air yards, yeah. Um, which right. air yards is interesting. Um, I'm not exactly – I've not exactly done a ton of work into it because I just haven't – one, I haven't been able to collect a ton of data on it because it's difficult to collect all the data on it. And two, I haven't really found a site that has enough data to really show statistical significance, at least right now. But – when it comes to what I look at, the only real thing I look at is market share yardage. Uh, I don't really look at market share touchdowns because when I did market share touchdowns, the success rate correlations was about a 30% difference, um, which was pretty – it was way off. And the only reason why I was like, okay, why is it way off? Because sometimes, sometimes there's players that are only using the red zone for red zone yep. targeting and right. stuff like that and uh, all that other kind of stuff. Basically what I'm trying to say is that the success rates were a li- they were about 30% better when it came to yardage, so I decided just to focus on that. Now, as far as yards per attempt and yards for all that kind of stuff, I haven't done enough uh, or at least added layers to that to see if that's any, of any importance. 
I would still say that that might be a little bit more descriptive than predictive because, again, if you're running a West Coast system, you're not exactly going to be throwing the football uh, very far through the air uh, all the time. Uh, or if you're running more of a Coriel system. Or, like, if you're – Right, right, uh, right. If, you know. If, if your system is based on air yards, Dar- Daryl LaMonica is a way better quarterback than Joe Montana. Right. Um, it, now, you know, if, you're, if that's how you rate quarterbacks. Now, you could argue – you could argue, well, Coriel systems are in the West Coast system, which may be true. I don't know. Or the West Coast systems are the Coriel system. We could argue about all that all the time and probably find some interesting things showing that this is better than this thing. But I just am saying that based on what I've done, uh, yardage market share correlation-wise uh, was better and was more predictive than uh, the touchdown market share, which was a little bit more descriptive than predictive in terms of outcome right. at the NFL level. And so you don't care about – I mean, I see you don't care about, but you don't care as much about things like run after catch or yards per completion or yards per reception or stuff like that. No, and it's not to say I don't care about it. I just don't have the data in front of me to really say either way about it. So it, that that data may actually say something that's that's meaningful. I just haven't done all the work yet on that yet to really say I should use that or not use it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, okay. but, but, like, what, one example of this is, like, with Odo Beckham Jr., right? Um, everybody was all up in arms about Odo Beckham Jr., touchdown-wise, you know, because he didn't score a great touchdown market share number. But his market share yardage was pretty good. And there was a bunch of other players that had really good – now, he was an elite market share yardage, but it was within the same sort of range of possibilities as a Mike Evans. DeAndre Hopkins, right? He's not that bad. Uh, you know, these other Antonio Brown, Deshaun Jackson, Andre Johnson, uh, Michael Westbrook, Santana Moss, Joe Jarevicius, uh, Sterling Shepard, who was also pretty good as well. Uh, his, his yardage market share was in that sort of range of possibilities. So, as much as people really wanted to downgrade Odell Beckham Jr., and I still get a lot of people going, Oh, you're a metrics guy. You hated Odell Beckham Jr. I loved Odell Beckham Jr. <laughs> right, uh, based exactly. on his tape and based on his athletic, you know, athleticism testing. Uh, it's just that somebody downgraded him because of the touchdown market share. When if you looked at the yardage market share, it was within a successful range of possibilities. I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I didn't throw Odell Beckham Jr. under the bus because his <laughs> touchdown market share was not elite. You know, right? Yeah. And some touchdown, people touchdown did market shares. Touchdown market shares so darn random. I mean, there are some guys. You know, there's some fullbacks whose names I could throw out there who have incredible touchdown oh, yeah. market share. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> terrible for running backs. Even you try to do try to do touchdown market share for running backs, you get a bunch of fullbacks and like these other sort of guys mixed in with other. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I mean, uh, Jerome Felton. Gerald Felton has awesome touchdown market share in his career, <laughs> you know. Um, that it's so yeah. I mean, it, it's it's like I said, it's a lot of randomness when it comes to that. Uh, similar question for you, Kent. When yeah, you're looking at yeah. So is there something? What do you care about? What do you not care about? I mean, when you rank or stack these these numbers. Which ones do you put up here and you think, okay, I really want to know this, particularly because this has turned out to be fairly uh, predictive, and then which things are more, you know, 
Yeah, and that's Festoon, where, the as I mentioned where, before, yeah. you know, I, I look at I look at the production metrics towards the end of my evaluation, so it's usually just mm-hmm. for things that I'm already looking at. Um, so it really depends on the situation. I remember Sammy Watkins that had the the huge yak numbers, and and people were making a big deal about how oh well he mostly did screens, you know, at and behind the line of scrimmage, and it's like yeah, that's because he wouldn't he won there. You know, I expected his yak numbers to be better than they were, even though they were still very good. Um, you know, Mike Evans, another another receiver from the same class, he didn't have very good yak numbers, uh, com, com, you know, comparing to Sammy Watkins, but it's all because of the type of routes that he ran. He still had a high – both of them actually, I believe, had the, the a very high uh, yards per catch because of how they got their yards, um, but they got them in different ways. So it really depends right. on the player – and and what you're really looking for, um, I know defensively it's almost impossible nowadays to use production metrics. Um, pro, you know, pro football focus is really big about devaluing sacks as a as a production metric and going by hurries, <laughs> pressure and stuff. And whether whether you ascribe to that or not, um, you know there's there are players that don't get sacked, and mostly it's on the defensive interior uh, guys that don't get sacked who are still very productive and in, in causing some pain in the backfield. Um, and then you have guys that get attacked. Uh, Demontre Moore from Texas A&M was uh, – what was A&M? Anyway, he was the one that, that I remember had a ton of sacks. And you went back to the tape, and it was taking him, you know, six, seven, eight seconds uh, to get those sacks. And it's like, yeah, you're not going to get that kind of time in the NFL – you know, like right. Dupree, it was only taking him like two or three seconds to get his sacks. Yes. Pressure. <laughs> it was unblocked pressure. So yep. it's the same type of thing where you're looking at it and you're going, you know, yeah, he's getting there quickly, but he also wasn't touched. And when he was, it, he didn't have nearly as much success. Um, right. So looking at the production metrics on the back end it has always been beneficial to me because you're seeing where are they, you know, those things that they win at and whether or not that actually translates to anything, whether you can actually get anything from it. Um, if I'm looking at a player and I, I think, oh, this guy should probably have a bunch of yards after the catch, and then he doesn't, then that's something that, you know, you, you want to take, you know, take back and look at. Um, but if I'm looking at a guy like a Laquan Treadwell from Ole Miss, uh, who makes most of his catches or contested catches or back shoulder catches, you know, I'm not going to look at his yak numbers. I don't care. I don't expect him to get a whole lot of those. You know, I expect him to, to, to get those big high – I expect him to have those wow catches. Um, but I don't expect to get yak out of that. And you're going to have that at every other position. You're going to have players where you're looking at them and you're going, yeah, I don't really expect him to get, you know, Melvin Gordon, I don't expect him to get a whole bunch of catches. That's not where he wins. That's not where he won in college. So it wasn't really a surprise to me. They made a big thing about it when it came around to draft time. I didn't care. That wasn't what he was winning doing. You know, it's notable if you're a team that passes to their running back a lot. Like I, I cover the Lions and they pass to their running back a lot. So it wasn't really an option for us because that would be important. Um, but in terms well, of it's just important to the Chargers too. But they just take him out and put Danny Wood right. in. That's what they think <laughs> yeah, about. But yeah, it's, 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 if you're looking at somebody and you're defining their skill set, you know, if they don't if they don't win that way, then I'm not really concerned about it statistically, unless there's a need for it and you're trying to force them into it. Like going back to Sammy Watkins, you know, the Bills have him going deep all the time, and you know he had that one big catch. Um, just this past week, but you know, most of the time it's like that's not where he won in college. Why did you draft a guy whose you know whose defining characteristic was that he could 
make guys miss and get all that extra yards after the catch, and then you're just going to have him run a couple of deep routes and chuck it deep to him. That doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, so it, it's just trying to figure out where people win, and production metrics usually are a good indication of how they were able to get those. You know, it shows you that if they, if they win in a certain way, how good they were at winning that way. You know, it's funny. You mentioned um, Sammy Watkins, and everything you said about him applies to a power of 10 to Cordero Patterson. Oh, and yeah. the Vikings are still trying to figure out how to how to maximize their return well, on investment with him. Well, hold on Go ahead, a second Jim. here. Yeah, well, Cordero Patterson, he, you know, get tested very similar to Des Bryant as athlete, faster than Bryant, not as explosive as Bryant. Production, though, was a little, eh. Well, that's what I'm saying, is that he, is, and, unlike Sammy Watkins, he, he, who at least was a full-service receiver, even though it was a, quote-unquote, simplified route tree, he ran, he did a running that simplified route tree. In the case of Mr. Patterson, I mean, not only did he run a fairly simplified route tree, he, he didn't do a great job of even handling that. Well, he was good on special teams. Um, he was didn't have very good short shot three combos. The explosive was fast, but the production, like I look at productions, I do agree with the sort of it shows you how well they won. But there does come a point in the production metrics where you're not getting uh, a really good player as much as you're getting the next Mike Wallace or the next, you know, Cordell Patterson. And away, you know, you're getting an athlete who can turn into something interesting, but you're not necessarily getting somebody who was probably warrant giving up so much for them, I suppose. I don't know. Patterson was always an interesting case because uh, based on tape, he really wasn't really great at running routes. He was great on special teams and, hey, went to a Pro Bowl because of his yep. special teams uh, abilities. <laughs> he just never really right. learned because, how to Because it's really. all improvisation and he can do that well. Yeah, yeah, and I think Patterson Patterson was probably the best example of of how how to look at valuation when you're when you're using all the metrics, regardless of which metric you're looking at it, whether it's just tape or looking at measurements. Patterson's a good cautionary tale for for how much value you put into those things. Well, I can understand, and once again, you know, I, I I talk to coaches and. It's fun to talk to coaches because coaches are very smart and sometimes not very smart at the same time about different things. And I can almost guarantee you that somebody went to their wide receiver coach and said, can you, can you teach this kid? Can you fix this kid? And I'm almost certain that that wide receiver coach said, sure, I can. Yeah, give me that stud hoss. I'll turn him into something. You know, coaches say stuff like that. One, because they believe it. You know, these are type A, confident personalities, you don't get to be an NFL football coach if you're a person who doesn't have a great deal of self-confidence and beliefs that you can do whatever it is you think. Jim Caldwell is still coaching the Detroit Lions, so at least at some point, one of those guys slipped through. Well, (laughs) right now, we'll see. (laughs) Maybe Jim Bob Cooter will take over. uh, Um, (laughs) Who is on my coaching all-main team. Oh, yeah. Gotta be. No, sure. Coaches get overconfident, you know, and 
it's kind of the job of metrics guys to kind of calm them down, I guess, a little bit. You know, sometimes coaches are right. Sometimes coaches will prove metrics guys wrong just as much as metrics guys might be wrong about something. But, you know, you kind of have to have a balance there. It's just, unfortunately, coaches also kind of want to be dictators too sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. And so, yeah. Well, and that, once again, that's a part of the personality type. Coaches are control freaks, most of them, and are looking for – I mean, even when they bring in metrics guys, they want metrics guys who will – how do I say this? I mean, the term confirmation bias is thrown out a lot. But well, I think usually they want someone to tell I've, them what I've they want. I've described it because I've talked to certain guys who've done it, and they kind of put it as, here's a list of guys. Go run checks on them. We really like these guys. So make them look good. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like, well, can I show you some other guys maybe and that you should probably look into? And they go, no, no, just these guys. And that's it. <laughs> and, I and that's all the guys. Up. I could do all the guys if you want. No, no, no. Please. You'd be you'd be amazed at how archaic some of those scouting systems were. I know oh, yeah. the Detroit Lions. The Detroit Lions didn't even have anything uh, automated. They had no actual draft database. They didn't even have anything in their computers to to keep track of all these guys. Everything was done by paper until Brian Sanders wow. was hired and had been here for a year, which was only two years ago. Yep. Wow. Think about the Raiders. The Raiders. The Raiders before Reggie McKenzie came in had teleprompters that they used. Yep. Mm-hmm. Teleprompters, Bill. They had to install computer systems in their draft room because they no. didn't have computer systems. Ah, <laughs> computers in 2012, <laughs> I believe it was. <laughs> what is this new technology? <laughs> uh, and of course, the Bengals often get mentioned uh, because. Until very recently, and Marvin Lewis was able to get them to, to you know, to invest a little more. But they used to have, I think, was it three full-time? I think you might have only had three yeah, full-time people in three. Three full-time. Like, I was part of a website that had more people devoting more man hours to scouting than the business exactly. did. <laughs> and it's kind of why Carson Palmer left. Carson, I mean, that was a big stickler, you know. A lot of people like Carson Palmer lose the Bengals if people forgot, I guess. It wasn't because he was old. It was because he wanted them to change things. Like, hey, let's hire a few more scouts and let's do this. And they why, were don't we, like, why don't we try to be a pro football team? You know, the, the pro <laughs> part is kind of important. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a. I think people and it's funny because people always say, well, you know, these guys know best and these are professionals and, you know, hey, if you can play, they'll find you. No, 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 it's not true. There are loads of guys who can flat out ball that the NFL just doesn't find, and they find lots of guys who aren't very good because there's still a lot of. I mean, I'm not saying you want to remove the human element. You can't remove the human element, but I know for a fact that there are guys that. Their coach calls their old college roommate or whatever it says, hey, you're having some tryouts. I'm sending kid, this kid, you know, hey, you know, could you help me out? Help him out. I mean, this happens. Now, obviously, they're not doing this with, you know, stars. I mean, these are guys who are going to be practice squad or 50, man number 52 on the 53-man roster. 
but eventually that catches up with you because because oh, of injuries yeah. and stuff. Because of injuries, you know, injuries happen, seen, and then you wonder why you know if you're the Colts, if you're this or that. I mean, it's the, the one thing that always frustrates. Look at the Ravens. The Ravens have now used four members of their practice squad are now on on their yeah. active. Not their 53, the active. Well, the Ravens have had a lot of injuries. I mean, they, they kind of led the – they were one of the teams that led the NFL injuries last year. This year, probably right. the same. I'm not, I'm not yeah, they've been ravaged by injury, yes. They are but in bad shape. It's the mentality of – because one thing always frustrated me about day three of the draft was I'd have my big board, which I have all these players with potential to be stars, potential to be impact players. And then all of a sudden, the – fifth string wide receiver from LSU gets drafted. And I go, and then I think to myself, the only reason why you draft this guy is to be a backup, to be a reserve. So you're drafting a guy to be a reserve. Especially instead of a guy that could I have another good example, the, the Detroit Lions this year, they drafted Lakin Tomlinson in their first round. He was their first round pick. And uh, they picked up uh, Anthony Boone, an undrafted free agency, to be their, their camp arm to try to compete for his third quarterback spot. Um, the worst athlete at quarterback in the last 15 years uh, is Kellen Moore. Uh, by any metric, he was the lowest-rated athlete by, in, in any way. Um, until this year, when Anthony Boone came out of college and managed to <laughs> measure worse in every area than Kellen Moore did. So he wasn't brought in. Because so it shows outside. they have a type. If you look at Combine and the way quarterbacks test, none of it really matters, actually. Um, there's no strong ties between any of the Combine tests and quarterback success. There's a slight neutral, I think, comparison if you look at the vertical jump. But well, the, really the two things, now, the two things, the two things actually, Montel, it's been, the two things that kind of matter Apparently, the things that kind of matter are lower body strength and agility, like, you know, three-cone, whatever. I mean, usually quarterbacks with yeah, terrible lower body strength with terrible I mean, agility true, don't do that. Josh McCowan has the record. He has, he's got a record three-cone. I mean, so I'm just well, saying that some of these things matter, but I'm not, you know, I, you, you like to see those things. But when I'm evaluating a quarterback, oh, you're a horrible athlete. Well, that must mean you're a horrible passer, too. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I have yet to see uh, a quarterback. Well, I mean, Peyton Manning, 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 Manning was not a terrific athlete. And yeah. Philip Rivers, oh, not no. a terrific athlete. I mean, no. Well, no, and Rivers actually, there's, no. There's, uh, there's no correlation between success, and that's completely right. There's no correlation between success and quarterback athleticism. But there's yeah. actually a, a very large cor- uh, uh, correlation between quarterback draft status and quarterback athleticism. Well, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. People yeah. love Jay Sumner because he could bench with his offensive lineman. I mean, not that it's, you know, mental. Right. And ran, ran <laughs> four seven two, and most yeah. importantly could throw a football at 80 yards, you know, when he's feeling good. The, yeah. Here's the thing that, that – we'll I guess we'll talk quarterback in a second. Oh, and uh, before I forget, ladies and gentlemen, there are seven acknowledged ones in the world. You're about to witness the eighth, the second hardest working man in Chicago sports media. It is the one, the only, Mr. Montel Hardy, because there ain't no party like a Montel Hardy party, because a Montel Hardy party don't stop. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Montel Hardy. 
<laughs> hey, hello. Thanks, Bill. How's it going, guys? Uh, so, yeah, I just kind of dove into the, the straight quarterback discussion, but um, I just thought it needed to be said, you know. Um, I, you know, people freak out over 40 times. And, I mean, you like to see a quarterback that can run maybe a 4-9. You like to see it because it means maybe they can save their own life and, you know, buy some time and, you know, do those types of things. But um, Then save Gabbard's life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I just thought it, it needed to be mentioned that I, I'm not going, and it's just something I found just in my study of quarterbacks over the past few months is that, you know, there's, there's, you think there is, you know, especially on a lot of things, but, you know, there, there truly hasn't been. But I can understand if you want lower body strength. But that's why I said is from what I've read and what I've seen that, you know, vertical jump has played a slight neutralness role, maybe slightly in favor, maybe slightly not, but. Um, weird, but, you know, needs to be said. <laughs> sure. I mean, even it's sort of like the, the the whole arm length thing. People get very excited about arm length at certain positions. And beyond a, a certain threshold, as Jim's pointed out in his work, and I don't know if Kip's found this to be the same as well, beyond a, once you get over a certain threshold, there tends to be not much different than productivity, length of career, et cetera, between people who have, you know, average and those who have elite or extreme or whatever term we well, use, arm length. We're talking everybody above the 15th percentile. So 85% of the guys with the arm length have no difference in outcomes, quality, quantity of success when it comes to the offensive line position. It's, it extends to a lot of positions, too. It's basically just checking boxes, you know. The, o- the yeah. only time you make note of some things like that is when they don't meet that threshold. If they do, then it's just a non-number. True. That, that's well, true. But the problem is, this is the only problem with it. That, that's true. That is why they do it. But people focus on, like, oh, he has 34-inch arms, which is average, and they go, oh, he has short arms. <laughs> because and then they go, he he can't play tackle anymore because he has average arm length, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Hand size for quarterbacks is another one. I remember Teddy Bridgewater. I was about to ask about that. He can't do it. His hands are too tiny, and he had he had average hand size for a quarterback. He didn't have even slightly. No, he, he has hands average. like a six. He has hands like a six year old girl. Is what. <laughs> Start hearing pretty. And wear gloves to throw football. Remember, guys. That's right. Yeah. Nobody wants a quarterback that needs to wear gloves. What are you? Like Peyton Manning. Tom Brady. <laughs> Kurt Warner. <laughs> well, nobody important then. If you're going to bring up those guys. <laughs> so you're telling me I need to kick Joe Thomas in the offense in the guard because. You know, he's got those 32 and a half inch time. Yeah, he's a little yeah. T Rex T Rex arm. Yep. Yeah. He can't play. Now that's he the crazy thing. I'm five seven and five eight and I do actually have longer arms than Joe Thomas. That is mind boggling to me. That that kind of you should yeah. play tackle. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's what I probably should have done. <laughs> So I don't know, Bill, because I think Cornelius Lucas had what, like, thirty-nine inch arms or something. Yeah, thirty-nine something like arms. that. Yeah, <laughs> and he's awful. He doesn't know what the hell he's, he's awful. Doing with his arms. And he's terrible. Yes. 
And yes, he's for, oh, was, you know, you always talk, Steve, about being a connoisseur of terrible quarterback play. If only you really loved terrible tackle play, because you would be in ecstasy now. If you look around the NFL, there are three or four teams that don't have a single tackle. I mean, they have people playing tackle, but they don't have a single tackle on their roster. Oh, somebody who should be playing tackle in the NFL on their roster. I'll put it that way. Well, it's astonishing. My, my, my beloved Titans had to kick Byron Bell out to tackle, and he was a large improvement. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that says everything you want to say right there. Uh, let me do a quick round of introductions. Uh, the Math Bomb himself at Math Bomb. All right, is it is it is it Math underscore Bomb? No, it's just Math Bomb. Math Bomb. Okay, sure. Okay, so it's at Math Bomb. Uh, Kentley Platt is with us. We have Steve Morton. We have, of course, Montel Hardy. I won't do the Montel Hardy instruction again because it takes too much out of me. And of course, we have Jim Coburn. So, the role of metrics in the evaluation process. And Steve. Scouting, but I thought I said Steve Morton already. Oh, I thought you said. Oh, never mind. Okay. So yeah. the the role, the the place. There are people who even now, essentially poo-poo metrics. You know, um, as Jim likes to say, just watch the tape. Uh, and even before I knew much about metrics, I knew they had a place. And every NFL, I say every NFL, most NFL teams. Let me let me catch myself. There are some teams that are still kind of living, you know, in the, in a previous era. But most NFL teams have a, an analytics department. They do. And but is right. it effective? Well, that's that's what we're going to get. Like, that here, like here's the here's the funny here's the funny part. You know, they did all this chip technology. Um, I don't know if you guys have read about this, but they basically put these little chips uh, in football, apparently for the shoes or something like that, and it measures um, it's different shoulder pads, shoulder pads, yeah, right, stuff, yep. shoulder pads, yeah, and it measures you know speed, uh, how fast they go in the line, you know, how fast they're doing this. They have tons of data. Uh, tons of data on this chip technology, but nobody to analyze it. And I say that because most of the time when they report the data, they just report the raw numbers without actually seeing if the raw numbers have any correlation mean or yeah. mean something, exactly. So some NFL teams do metrics, do the arm length collection, all that kind of stuff, but at the end of the day, they don't really analyze it or use it to see if it means anything. So it's just kind of useless. It just kind of sits there. It's background right. noise. It's like well, a little painting, you know, in the background. Right. And they have it, nice. They have it, that's true. But they don't use right. it. No. And some of them don't know how to use it. I've sort of, I guess, discussed this in the past. Kent wasn't here in the past, but Sort of beside historical uh, sort of, you know, placement, the Cowboys were the first NFL team to at least attempt to figure out prototypes and things like that based on data. You know, what's the ideal body for a cornerback to have? How quickly should a quarterback be able to complete a five, a three, five, seven step drop, ideally, to sync up with a wide receiver who runs four four five, you know that kind of thing. I mean, they actually were the first team to try to figure out, 
you know, what to do with the data, basically. And even they didn't get it right some of the times. You know, they, they made some data-driven errors even at times. But, you know, that was something they started trying to do as, as way far back as the 70s. And part of it was due to they had a very analytical coach. You know, Tom Landry was a trained engineer and a pilot in, in, or, and a person who was a bomb, a, a bombardier navigator on a, a B-25 in, um, in World War II. Very calm, very analytical, obviously. And, and they were that absolutely ruthless. You talk about yes. an organization that was ruthless at getting rid of players before, oh, yes. they, before, before, they, before they went right as they were going down. That, and sometimes even before too. they went down. And also it was ruthless about getting rid of guys who didn't fit in. I mean, <laughs> one of the more famous examples being Dwayne Thomas, who came off a 1,000-yard-plus season, made the mistake of bringing up, hey, I couldn't help but notice that the white guys get paid more than the black guys here, <laughs> here in Dallas. And well, bye-bye. Yes, that's, that was it for him. somebody else will sign you to your band. <laughs> and, and to, I mean, and as you pointed out that, I'm not gonna say Tom Landry put the bad mouth on him, but he didn't he didn't he didn't support him to the hilt when people called and asked about him either. So he kind of put an end to Dwayne Thomas's career anyplace, uh, to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I've the, said this on Twitter. I mean just to, you know, I know as an aside to this, but if you look at those if you look at those seventies Cowboys, Gil Brandt was insanely good at his job. <laughs> yeah. Insanely good. <laughs> yep. I mean, they yeah. had Hall of Famers stacked on top of Hall of Famers. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that talk down about him nowadays, but it's like y'all don't even realize where he was before. It's like there's a reason that he gets to say crazy stuff now. People well, he invented. Now. He invented. He, there's about three guys, four guys that names I could throw out there who kind of invented modern scouting as it exists now. Theo Bracado, <laughs> uh, who who recently you know, went his great reward. Who should be in the Hall of Fame, quite frankly? Uh, we just talked about Gil Brandt, Steve Belichick, obviously father of Bill. And the reason, one reason that Bill Belichick is Bill Belichick, not just, you know, from a genetic standpoint, but from, an, right, but from an approach standpoint is right because of his father. And then the other guy I would throw in there is Bill Nunn. Now, Bill Nunn's not even, was never even a full-time scout, but he was the guy that unlocked the HBCUs and all that talent to the Steelers that helped the Steelers go from being, you know, frankly, a team that was somewhere between terrible and awful uh, for decades to suddenly, there's a reason they, you know, suddenly became the, you know, the team of the seventies. It was largely because Bill Nunn, a guy who was a newspaper man and father of the actor, Bill Nunn Jr., and the son of the founder, uh, Bill Nunn the first, the founder of the old Pittsburgh, uh, Courier, the black newspaper in Pittsburgh, what he did, you know, look at 74. Two of the, the guys, one a Hall of Famer, one a guy who was really, really good, though he didn't make the Hall of Fame, he got them and got them for basically peanuts, right? He got them Stallworth and Donnie Shell, Stallworth for not much and Shell for basically nothing. He got them Elsie Greenwood and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Ernie, um, uh, Dwight White and L.C. Greenwood, he got them three quarters or almost three quarters. He got them a little over half of the steel curtain. And this is a guy that was a newspaper man. Never was a, never, was never full-time on Pittsburgh staff. But, yeah, the, um, 
the the art of scouting or science of scouting or whatever you want to call it, well, it's not really a science. So yeah, it's the, whatever, is shaped to some extent by the things we're talking about, right? Data, information, uh, analysis of data points, and and actually you know gathering and figuring things out. But there's also clearly, like I said, you know, you can't get rid of the human element for two reasons. One, human beings are the ones that actually go out and play football, so you do have to account for that part of it. And two, some guys just don't fit in certain areas. I don't know if you guys, if you guys go far enough back, we have Rob Johnson's numbers. But Rob Johnson, first of all, son of a coach, uh, one of the early Orange County quarterback gurus, Bob Johnson Sr. If you saw Rob Johnson on a sideline, I mean, you would say, you would swear Central Casting sent you a quarterback. I yep. mean, he, he, he had quarterback hair. <laughs> he had quarterback hair. He he had a beautiful throwing motion. I mean, you could once again, you could tell you this is not a quarterback coach. I mean, that's a luscious throwing motion. He, his throwing motion is still one of those. It's funny. They had a run of USC quarterbacks that did not have great, great pro careers, but their throwing motions, I mean, Say what you want about Todd Marinovich. Look at that kid's mechanics. They're perfect. I mean, or as close to perfect as I see. I mean, sweet. sweet. The feet, the, the, the ball carries, the release, it's all just so crisp and so clean. And same deal with Rob Johnson. Terrific athlete, sub 4-7 in the 40, 35-and-a-half-inch vert, 9-10 broad jump. I can't remember what a street cone was, but it was basically like a, Slot, not slot receiver, but like a possession receiver. He like a, you know, he just great, and he just throw the ball a country mile. But he was also a total jackass, and unfortunately, and he wasn't as good a quarterback as Doug Flutie. Who, well, uh, right, he's not a guy that didn't look like an NFL quarterback. <laughs> yeah, right. So you have Doug Flutie, who was a terrific athlete himself. I mean, Doug Flutie. Was a guy that there were teams that wanted sure. to work Flutie out at receiver or or defensive back. Receiver, running back. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're yeah. not a quarterback. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you're you know he's not much taller than I am. I've stood once again right next to Doug Flutie, and I'm I'm a little under five foot eight, and I just about looked him dead in the eye. So he he's not very tall. That is that is clear. But he had a really good arm. I mean, maybe not elite <laughs> level, but a better arm than people would so fixate on his height, they would forget he could throw the football pretty well. But obviously, you always worry about can, what can he see? Can he see what's going on? Mm-hmm. Well, two things. No quarterback really sees certain things. You you know the hopefully know the offense to such an extent and what the defense is doing to such an extent that you know without seeing certain things. You can't see everything. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a bit of, you know, sixth sense, whatever you want to call it, instinctiveness to understanding <laughs> spatial landscapes uh, right. It's a position to where you, you know, knowing where guys are, being able to throw blindfolded, essentially. I, mean, I know it sounds crazy, but there are guys who can't do that. Uh, and you kind of do see that with Drew Brees and, you know, Russell Wilson and guys that even though they can't really see, they're able to understand space enough that they can put the ball in places, you know, they can put the ball into a spot that they can't even see just based on their ability to throw uh, and adjust the trajectory without seeing it. But right. that takes a really great level of understanding of spatial, you know, awareness mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. So, 
Yeah, and now there's guys doing brain mapping to try to figure out, you know, who who should be a quarterback. I believe I've been joined by Matt Caraccio. Very quick, ragazzi. Hey, what's going on, guys? Um, we're doing very, very well. Let me go through the, the lineup. So we have not just one. It's a bonus show because you've got not one but two metrics guys. It's like a it's like an Oreo with two <laughs> metrics guys, you know, and then a bunch of scouts stuffed in between. Uh, so uh, we've got Steve, uh, Steve Morton. We, of course, got Montel Hardy. And, of course, uh, Matt is from Optum Scouting. I have had a long relationship with Optum Scouting dating back to, I guess, a little before Eric even started Optum <laughs> Scouting, I, I guess. Uh, it's a very interesting organization. And I've even done a little bit of, you know, inter- interchange of ideas with, with Eric early in his career. So, Matt, we're talking about the role of metrics. In evaluation, right? Where it fits, what you do with it, what it means, what it can do, and then what it can't do. You know, so there's, you know, obviously, like I said, a strong polarization within the evaluation and scouting community about what metrics are for, what you do with them. And some people do nothing with them, right? I mean, they, mm-hmm. <laughs> they do absolutely nothing. Don't even look at them. I don't want to know. I don't care. And then there's people who, uh, strongly are driven by them. And then I think a lot of us are where I am, sort of in between. We want to know more about them. We want to understand more, but we, we obviously lean most greatly upon our own understanding as we're warned not to do in the good book. But we lean strongly upon, you know, hey, I know this, I see this, this is what I, this, this kid reminds me of this kid and all that kind of, you know, stuff we do. So one, Matt, you make use of, analytics and, and metrics at all in your work? And uh, if so, how? And if not, what do you think prevents you from doing it? Um, you know, so it's actually kind of interesting. Um, my experience with metrics probably dates back to my experience with uh, baseball uh, way back when, when um, really uh, Saber Metrics was kind of not necessarily coming oh, okay. on the scene. That's, that, was definitely, that definitely predates me. But I took a very early interest in the work of baseball prospectus and books like Baseball, the Hidden Game, and the Hidden Game of Football. I thought, you know, used copies and read it. Um, and as a mathematician, actually, by training, that was that's my actual background. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a very good, you know, feel for numbers, um, but the application of metrics to me was always really intriguing because it had never dawned on me, which is actually ironic, despite my, my analytical training, to really use metrics in order to start trying to quantify games. I guess because it was always an outlet for me, I never really looked at it from that particular perspective. It was always like, well, I'm just going to enjoy and watch the game. But as scouting became something I became more interested in, I began to use metrics in a very, very nascent way, to be very honest with you, Um, despite my experience with numbers. I was just, I, I used metrics all the time to at least, in my mind, begin to filter the country down to players that are, overproducing or producing at a high level because, I mean, let's be real. I can't watch every game. I can't watch an entire season of every team. So I need a way to at least begin to focus my attention on those players that are really overproducing or outperforming others. So, I mean, just a very simple thing that I used to start with and I still even do now is, you know, I I check out the box scores. And I go through and I just look at, you know, players that maybe I was 
excited about in preseason, or maybe I wasn't, or maybe there was a five-star recruit I was excited about. And I just kind of keep notes on, you know, what their production levels have been. And just looking at the good old-fashioned, you know, if you're a quarterback, you're com- not necessarily a completion percentage, but maybe your touchdowns, your yards, your interceptions. Um, if you're a running back, obviously, I look at things like your, uh, you know, your yards per carry. Um, I'm looking at things like, um, you know, did you have any receptions? If so, uh, how many yards did you get? What was your number of yards from the line of scrimmage? Very Things that aren't really new, but there are metrics that still at least, you know, speak to you about what happened on the field that day. And as far as using some of these, um, some of the new, more evolved uh, metrics, I, I really I really haven't had a lot of experience with them, if, n- if for nothing else, just because of a limited time to investigate all of them. And that would be really my only, um, my only drawback, because I think that when you look at scouting, I think the intersection between numbers and film is where you get it right. Because mm-hmm. I think numbers offer you such a tremendous um, asset in filtering down. They're, they're really, they're tremendous filters. You know, you may not be able to look, like I said, and watch every game, but if you're able to find a couple of metrics that you believe in that are predictive of performance at the next level, I think you have something that you can use to filter the country. To say that it's only one and not the other would be silly, but I think it's the collaboration between the two, the intersection of the two, is where I think you're going to get the best prospects and the best performers um, more consistently. So I, I can't say that there's, like, I like the adjusted yards. I like adjusted yards. I like yards after contact. I think those are interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But for those metric guys that are actually on the show, um, I, and I, I guess I'm as a math guy as well, I mean, I'm not going to put myself in your shoes because you guys spend all day um, really trying to refine these and hone these and fine-tune them. It really is like a fine automobile once you get a really good metric going. Um, but the one thing I find with metrics and the biggest pitfall is if they don't accurately reflect what's going on on the field. In other words, the metric should pass the eye test just as much as the eye test should test the eye test. So if you have a guy who's obviously performing at a high level on the football field and your metric doesn't reflect that, there is a question as to whether or not your metric has validity. And I think that's the constant struggle that I think, you know, uh, analysts go through, especially those that are metric-based analysts, is that's what they're trying to get to. Um, so that's that's the thing that I think I believe in metrics. I think they have a solid place. I think film is really what I've been concentrating on and where I reside most of all. It's kind of where I set up shop and set up my tent. Um, but it's not because of a of a of a of an ignorance to metrics or a lack of wanting to use them. It's more or less of a, of a time investment that I haven't had quite yet. So I'm really anxious to to kind of listen to all those analysts and hear where they're at because I think it really does a tremendous job in really filtering the country down to players that we really should be focusing on. And that's that's a good way to think of it because I guess filtering is a, is a term we're all going to use in various ways. Now, Montel, I know that you are in the process of becoming sort of an acolyte uh, in terms of the use of metrics. You as so often is the case, you, the old saying is it's the, the newest convert that sings loudest in church. Uh, what was it that made you want to go from being, you know, just a just watch the tape 
kind of guy to a guy that actually is playing with the numbers? Was it uh, Jim's influence or your own curiosity or a combination of both? Uh, I think a, a combination of both. And, and, and Bill, you worded it exactly right. Uh, well, the first thing was, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I've been evaluating, you know, prospects for a little while, and uh, for the most most part, during college uh, was kind of where I did, you know, like during undergrad, anyways, is when I did kind of like the core of my studying. And uh, with my schedule, I'd only do a certain number of prospects. And like, uh, you know, a little over a year ago, when I started working with MGSC, I had to kind of evaluate, you know, just just way more prospects, <laughs> you know. So uh, as I got in there, uh, kind of going back to um, what I think Matt just said is that, you know, you can't see every game. But it's important to try to get the important, you know, the, the big takeaways from uh, some of these guys that are considered to be performing well, you know. So you got to delve, look into that, and see how uh, testing plays a role in those things. Uh, also, uh, another thing has been curiosity too. Uh, there's always been a lot of players that I liked. Uh, me and you, Bill, shared a mutual love for Andre Woodson, you know. So you know, there's guys that you like that you really want to know, man. What happens to this guy? You know, why couldn't he cut it? You know, the tape seemed great, and also it just kind of makes sense. Uh, from a, a logistical point of view, uh, you know, I know Matt said, you know, I do believe in metrics. Well, you know, we're not talking about Santa Claus here. You know, it's not debatable. You know, like these numbers are numbers, and this is, you know, people don't want to accept it. I get it. You know, a kind of business theory is a thing. But the truth is, uh, you know, they provide a good explanation for why things are the way they are. And I've seen, you know, more and more over the coming, you know, months. Like I said, I've been really – um, learning in increments, I think, for, for about the last year. And I think last spring was kind of where I really started to fall in, in love with it and really see the numbers and really put in the work and see what it means. And, uh, you know, I've been sold ever since because it, it does provide explanation for things that otherwise don't make, you know, a ton of sense. Um, also, it can give you insight into some players that might be of good value later in the draft. Uh, and that's some things people don't always know. So it's good to have those gems ready to go. But, um, yeah, I, I'd say I've just been kind of, you know, learning, going with the flow. You know, James has provided some, some awesome advice and, and knowledge, and I've just been listening uh, and then just trying to apply and kind of work on my own projects. Uh, like I said, uh, you know, I'm you know, doing some injury research and also looking into, you know, quarterbacks and, you know, some things that, that factor into those being good or, or bad. And uh, But, yeah, you know, just like uh, what you were saying earlier, uh, it, it helps you provide an explanation for some things that, you know, otherwise wouldn't make sense. And obviously it helps you get to uh, the important results, even though you can't see every game. Uh, production is important and, and athleticism in the combine is important. And I see a lot of people gushing over some things that don't matter. You know, sometimes you have your, your centers say, you know, do the bench press. They say, oh, he's incredible. Bench press doesn't really have much to do with making a great center. Uh, so, you know, it, it just helps you kind of learn and be ahead of the curve. And I think, and I was just telling James this the other day, I think in football especially you're seeing a major movement uh, to it. So I really think this is the future of football. I think a lot of people who aren't using it need to be using it. And if you don't, then you, at least you can say, you know, I was – you know, I was the first guy on Mars, guys. You know, <laughs> I was the first person here. You know, I was one of the first few people to understand it and to get it. And so um, I'm glad to be on board. Now, Steve, I'm going to operate on the assumption and probably a pretty solidly informed assumption. You and I are obviously the, the senior partners. Uh, we've been around <laughs> a while. And, you know, the term metrics wasn't even used, at least around football, when you and I started doing this stuff. And we sort of watched this 
revolution, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, take place, you are also a person with it. I'm probably the only liberal arts guy around here, I guess. But um, you, or I guess one of a few, uh, you have a, a strong analytics background as well, but you haven't incorporated it that fully into, you know, data mining or whatever into what you do football-wise. Uh, one, is that just because you don't want to be on a busman's holiday? And then, uh, <laughs> and then two, are you at least intrigued by the possibility or are you just, you know, because I'm looking to maintain your vacation. Yeah, we. I have a you know a, a different background. Yeah, you know, I was always you know, for a better term, really really good at math. So I started in actually in sports doing the NFL draft and sabermetrics in baseball as my hobbies when I was a kid. So, I mean, you know, I would, you know, get the papers and watch games and everything and also do, you know, basically look into sabermetrics. And the sabermetrics community, the one thing I will say, if you want you want guys that were the – that were wide open as a book, as I, I, I have emails where I emailed Rob Nyer back and forth with ideas, and he couldn't didn't know me from anybody. It was just someone that emailed him. And ask them, you know, some questions, and you would answer them, and you know, and email back. That's how that community really was. They were, the, they were mm-hmm. just, they, they really wanted, you know, they, they had no clue that, you know, like, a, you know, to close off, you know, the things that they were learning, and, you know, if anyone wanted to learn, you could just go with them. So, you know, I was a math major in college, and I spent the last thirty years, no, limit, twenty years. Uh, you know, as a prof- in a professional way, as a data miner, and I manage a BI group now, so I manage a bit better intelligence group. And for me, when I was actually doing the NFL draft and football, it was kind of like didn't want to actually even do anything with metrics or data because, Lord knows, I just it was what I went to work to do, and I didn't want to bring it home. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. I'm, I'm sorry, you're just saying the same thing I was thinking. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't want to bring it home and. Because I mean, it, it, the, you know, when you when you're when you're doing data mining and data analysis for a large bank, and the bank's going to make million dollar decisions um, based on whatever you tell them, I mean, you know, it's just hard, it's mentally hard work. <laughs> it is. And so I just never ever thought about doing it, and a lot of the the and to be honest, a lot of the metrics work in football, you know, really it's not all that good. And you know, there's not a you, you don't have defined procedures and they're not the results aren't, you know, reproducible and the the analysis you're kinda of wondering, has anyone ever set made the uh you know, you know, do the folks sit down and test their models and make sure they actually mean something? You know, does it mean something when when I say a, a, a guy did a had a minus seven eight game seven point eight game? That really mean anything when it comes to winning games? Mm-hmm. I mean, does it does it match with what what matters? And so I really didn't even start looking at at metrics really until I started you know talking to Jim a whole lot, talking to Jim and Jim kind of you know lit he some of my uh, 
some of my curiosity because, you know, some of the stuff he was doing, which is great. And uh, what he was doing was really, really great is he was tying it back to do the outcomes matter. Does, you know, does what I'm, what I'm saying, does this model that I have, does it matter in, in player results and player outcomes? And so that's what really, you know, got me to looking at it. And the one great thing about metrics is now that that works out there and, you know, you can just steal it and you don't have to do it yourself, <laughs> is the one thing is Tate, I know people say Tate never lies. That might be true, but it might not tell you the whole truth either. Because the well one thing that you have with Tate is you have, a, you have very, very little tape. Exactly. Of, of players versus the quality of player that they will play in the NFL. Uh, you have, even in the SEC, most of the players in the SEC, what they will do for a living will not be playing in the NFL. Uh, and it's, as you go, as you go out of even, you know, the deeper conferences, the SEC, the Pac-12, Big Ten, it's just going to get worse. I mean, but even in those conferences, an offensive lineman in the in the Big Ten might have four matchups, partial games, where they're playing a guy who's good enough to be a good player in the NFL. So what metrics does is it really focuses you in on what types of players, what how are their production normally in college are the good players in the NFL, how did they perform in college, and what kind of athletes were there. And you'll find that those are pretty consistent. That, you know, a guy who runs a 5-8, you may think he's got wonderful power as an offensive tackle, and you may think speed does long speed doesn't matter, but there aren't too many good tackles in the NFL who ran a 5-8 at the combine, or 5-6, or 5-4. So... <laughs> So you might think, well, I don't think that should matter. It might because what it means is, you know, being a good athlete is important even in offensive tackle. Being a good athlete is important in guard. It actually may be, as we talked, we talk maybe less important in quarterback, but a lot of the quarterbacks, even the ones that kind of tested poorly, suddenly became better athletes once they got into the NFL. A guy like Tom Brady the better athlete at 32 than he was at 22. Uh, if you wanted to see a, just something that an athletic move that I just that made me draw jaw drop this year was in the Titans New Orleans game, Drew Brees at 37 probably did like a 35 inch vert to score a touchdown, jumping over a pile. I mean that's just insane lower body strength for a guy who's 37 and a quarterback. But a lot of quarterbacks have really good lower body strength. So, you know, maybe that matters. And so that's the type of things that really I think metrics has made the evaluation process better in that you get an idea of what type of players, what do they look like, and then you can also maybe get into some good bargains because you end up maybe with a guy like Jake Fisher who doesn't have the things that people look for in a tackle, but who's an insanely good athlete and – is playing pretty well right now. So, and a guy like you know Jeremiah Pukasi is not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, and it sounds crazy, but it's like you know the, one of the things that Jim says. If you look at offensive tackles, all the good ones are six six or more, 
are six six or are six six or taller. There are really none of them that are six five and short. So, you know, even well, though it's crazy, you say that's an inch. Wait. Well, I mean, Jason Jason Peters Jason somewhere Peters. is shaking his fist at you at six <laughs> four and three quarters. But I, I was just saying that that when I was doing the arm length and the height mm-hmm. metric, it was height that was more predictive of quality uh, correlations than it was arm length. Uh, and that was just because 83% of the multiple all-pro offensive tackles since 1996 were six foot six or higher. And there's definitely Jason Peters and Trent Williams. Well, not Trent Williams. He, he probably he's pretty good though. There are other examples of six foot five, six foot four offensive tackles that were very good, but they also were tremendous athletes, especially Jason right. Peters. I mean, Peters and mm-hmm. Williams are. Like Insanely good almost athlete. Calvin Johnson like an at their height. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, right. And then I didn't see a ton of I didn't see like average athletes at six foot five that were, you know, world beaters or multiple pro type guys. So that that's all I meant. It's just that the mm-hmm. height was much more of a correlation to than other and of course Kutasi. I I wore, I'm sorry, Steve, I don't always like to be right about you know <laughs> <laughs> about stuff. Uh, well, I had to, you know, when I had to kick Byron Bell out the tackle to pick up an improvement. Right, but Butasi <laughs> tested more in line with like a Mike Ayupati, you know, a guard type of prospect. And uh, I, I just warned Steve that Butasi <laughs> might not work out at tackle because he's a less athletic Mike Ayupati. So... Well, I don't you know, know if that's going to work. You know what, gentlemen? I mean, you know what? You know what I think that I hear from both of you, and this is something that I think is the is a is a big discussion for both for both kind of contingencies, both the analytics and the film side. There's there's a lack of understanding, I think, universally between how we define certain things, whether it be average, yep. above average. Um, what does it mean to be NFL average? What is supposed? What does correlation really mean? You know, some of us we threw these ro- words around, and sometimes people think correlation means causation, which I mean, I know in this discussion we all know doesn't necessarily mean that. But when we say it's predictive, some people say, well, then that means you're saying that he is going to be an NFL tackle, but that's not necessarily the case. So I mean, I think there's a massive disconnect between the vocabulary of both contingencies, film people metric people, and then there's like the, I mean, I'd like to throw myself right in the middle and say, I believe that it's right in the middle. Somewhere in there, that's where the truth is. I think mm-hmm. that that's, that's a huge, huge, almost like if we had a summit, if we were two countries coming together to sign a peace treaty, it would have, it would probably take forever because you'd be like, well, I just want an average amount of, of fuel for the next year. And they'd be like, well, I need more. I need above average. And they'd be, what the hell do you mean by above average? And it, would, and it would be a massive disconnect because I think that's that's the biggest issue, I think, is really just filling out a lot of the definitions and what we're trying to say as metric people. When I tell you in sabermetrics, like, you know, sabermetrics is, was just a bunch of research. It was research. It was, it was just... It was just like like Steve said, it was data mining. You were just saying, hmm, I think there's a correlation between this metric we call on-base percentage and run scored. Um, hmm, let's see if it works out. 
Uh, well, look, Scatterplot looks pretty good. Uh, line of uh, linear aggression looks pretty good. Uh, okay, let's go with it. And you know, and, like, uh, and, and, you, and you think about it, you're like, oh, wait a minute. You you mean the more runners you put on base, the more of them that will touch on Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah, and it goes. Yeah, and it goes back to football. What I was just gonna say is, you, you kind of see it in football too, and that's kind of what you know made me more and more interested in it. Is is the second you start like knowing anything metrics related and applying it, the second you kind of start seeing like mistakes, you know, in analysis, yeah. mistakes and where people are selected. And that's where you're like, wow, people really don't get this? It's so easy. <laughs> like that, that's, yeah. that's what kills me. Well, I think, you, I, think you're hitting the, I think you're hitting the point on the head is like, you know, what really matters when scoring in football? Because really that's what everything should be, really boil around is whether or not what you're doing on the field, and, and Steve, you pointed this out, until you're saying this, John, you're saying, it, it comes down to is what you're doing on the field producing points in some way. Or, whether, or, or preventing, preventing points if you're on the air, exactly. Right. That's it. That, I mean, really, that's it. What else do you want them to do? Either producing or you're preventing. And I think that's that's like such a – that's why I think it's so great to have maybe – I wish we could all sit down and come up with a common language you know, because I think that's sometimes where the biggest, the biggest challenge is. accepted. Here's, here's, it's fun. It's funny because you, um, as you, uh, I've gotten sort of friendly with the inside of the pylon guys, and they're trying to work on a glossary, which is cool. But I want to go a step beyond a glossary to an actual full-on, like lexicon, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> compilation of. I guess it'd be a combination of stuff that I've learned in my decades of just watching football, writing about football, talking about football, with all the stuff I'm learning from people like like Kent and from from Jim. Because, yeah, we say a kid's above average because I'm just pulling up what I think average is in my head. You know, uh, average in my head, if we're talking about quarterbacks, is like, um, you know, like uh, – Joe Flacco, who got to never go wrong you know, had a really Smith. great role for a while there. Right, Alex Smith, Joe Flacco, right? These, that's sort of like average in my head. Well, and, I might fight you a little bit on that, but, you know, a little above average for Flacco. Right. right. Okay. okay, a little above yeah. average. Right, I agree with and, that. And then, and then, you know, below average, I'm pulling up guys like Fitzpatrick in my head. And, right. you know, right? And then, you know, when we get to poor, I'm pulling up like Dan Olosky, you know, mm-hmm. you know I'm just, right? I'm not looking at anything. I'm not quantifying. I'm just, I've watched a lot of football, you know, hey, remember how good this guy was? How good is this guy compared to that guy? Now, what I think would be cool is to take people like me and other people who just watch a lot of football and remember a bunch of stuff and then actually go back and look, well, how good was Steve Barkowski? You know, how good was... See, I got semi-inspired by this by writing my uh, article about Hall of Fame snubs, and I started to really get into Ken Anderson. And when you really get into Ken Anderson's numbers compared to his era, you realize he was really, really, really good. Um, and I'm not going to bore everybody, but in, in quarterback rating, there's been the record you know, for leading in your career is six, and that's Steve Young, who led the – the league in quarterback rating six times in his career, which can, when you consider sort of how his career played out, is especially impressive because, you know, he was terrible he on a terrible starter. team. He was terrible early and really wasn't a right. full-time starter again until he was, like, what, 31? He was, exactly, 
Exactly. So <laughs> he had one of the great last acts of an NFL career you'll ever see. Of course, now we're seeing, you know, Tom Brady. So, you know, maybe maybe we'll, maybe we'll change our opinion about that. But until Tom Brady came along, probably the last, the great last, greatest last act maybe of any NFL quarterback ever. And he did it six times, which is, like I said, mind-boggling. Between the ages of 31 and 38, he led the league in, 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 in quarterback rating six times. The person was number two in the history of the NFL is four with Ken Anderson. Now, once again, he was in the dead ball era when it didn't, you know, you didn't have, your numbers didn't have to be crazy to leave the league. You know, this is when, you know, Bradshaw made the, was a Pro Bowl starter one year after passing for 1,873 yards to give you an idea of, you know, how what the dead ball era, you know, was like. But the point I'm making is that you have to sort of quantify some of these things based on era because some of these numbers don't look like much. You know, so we're just saying, hey, between the years of 2005 and 2015, which I guess is, you know, probably these guys are all comparable because, you know, the rules they're all playing under are fairly, fairly similar. And then you'd want to say, well, who was average? What was average in this period to this period? Was it, you know, Billy Joe Hallmark? You know, probably not. But, um, but you know, whatever it was in this other era, probably a little less than there. But you want to figure out, okay, based on this era, who was average? And then based on this era, who was average? Well, Bill, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you guys. Gentlemen, I wanted to yeah. wish you thankful, uh, a thankful good evening. Um, unfortunately, uh, we welcome the new being into our family. I know. So, uh, You've got new yeah. humans. And once again, yeah. um, you know, my congratulations to you and your wife Thank and you. your, your, your other existing child who is a big yeah. brother now. Big oh, yeah, he's a big, big brother. He's a big, big brother. brother. Oh, okay. Oh, so yeah. Okay. Congratulations so, to all of you, and I know that you have, you know, many duties, as many of us do. So uh, tell people where they can find and follow your work sure. before you go, Matt. Sure. Uh, you can follow me at uh, Matty underscore uh, OS on Twitter, and uh, I'll be doing podcasts and uh, doing some blog posts on uh, the Saturday to Sunday football uh, .com website. And um, I just re- recently wrote something on uh, Tyler Murray, and um, it's uh, pretty good. So we'll see you guys soon. Thank you. I will definitely be checking that out. I, once again, you know, I'm sure Steve remembers watching his father, as I did, Kevin Murray, who followed Gary Kubiak. Oh, yes. I hear this. Yes, that is your... Yes. Well, go take care of that, Matt. <laughs> Good evening, guys. <laughs> Bye-bye. Good evening. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad Matt was able to carve out a little time. He is, um, yes, dealing with, with new fatherhood. Again, God bless him. Uh, I loved being a father uh, to a baby, but I, you know... It was an experience I'm glad I had, and I'm glad I'm not having. I'll put it that way. I, as much as I loved it. <laughs> Bill says he likes to sleep. <laughs> and I like to do this. I mean, you know, I couldn't do, dude, if I had a new baby in the house, y'all would be, you know, DMing me to find out if I was still around or whatever, because I wouldn't be able to do all the stuff I'm doing. It is, to those of you who have not yet had the experience, it is an amazing but all-consuming experience. They are, when people use the term helpless as a baby, until you have a baby, you don't realize quite what they mean by that. But, oh, that's what you mean. Oh, oh, okay, right. You can't clear your own sinuses. You can't turn over. Oh, you can't do anything. Oh, my. All right, then. Well, I guess I'll be cleaning out your sinuses as I dropper. But, yes, yes, it's... Uh, Quite the experience, like I said. Well, Bill, uh, I, I yeah. will be back. 
But sure. uh, uh, speaking of children, uh, my uh, yeah. my two uh, children, the four-legged furry children, right? Yes, they they are telling me they're going to go outside or inside, and it's my pick. <laughs> right, right. Well, hopefully, you and they will make the right decision together. So yeah, I will be right back, but I'll be gone. Yeah, for take, about, about hand, hand, handle your business, sir. Um, <laughs> but, but getting back to you made a great point about common language. Like the term, here's where, where, and Jim and I have talked about this, the term explosive. Somebody will say, man, that guy ran a 426. He's explosive. Well, I mean, there are certainly guys out there who run 426 who are explosive. But, Fast. Right. That's the thing. It's the common language thing that was just talked about. When you don't actually have a common language, somebody will say, 46, boom, that gets explosive without right. establishing that the kid is actually explosive. Now, if fast. he's traveling at that speed and collides into something, that could be explosive if he's going at a fast enough speed, but the actual act of going fast is not necessarily, you know, you're not, ex- like, the basic way to put it is is that, you know, there was a lot of talk with like Amir Abdullah, and people were poo-pooing his 40-yard dash, if I remember correctly. I don't know, was I right? Um, (laughs) People were like, oh, he ran four, five-ish, or something like that. People were like, oh, yeah. He was in the 4.6s, actually, but yeah, there were some people who, who, there were some people who started to fall out of love with him at that very moment. Right. Mm -hmm. But his explosion numbers were insane in terms of explosive lower body you know, in yeah. terms of vertical, broad jump, uh, short throw, three cone, yeah. he was a explosive athlete. Right. He wasn't very fast. Right. So when I see people watch Amir Bula on tape and I go, wow, look at how fast he is, I, I wouldn't say he's fast as much as when he's doing his cuts and doing his stances and exploding in one direction. What looks like speed is, is, is explosion. He has, he has great acceleration. He gets to what his top speed is very quickly. His top speed, however, is not amazingly it's not like four, fast. Three or something no, like and that. you saw that. You saw that if you watched the games because he got chased down from behind a lot. But he also yeah. had to be chased down from behind a lot because he was able to get ahead of people so quickly. <laughs> exactly <laughs> because of his explosiveness. Right. So it, it was just sort of that people looking at oh the forty yard dash so he sucks now because he ran four six and I was like going whoa 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 <laughs> <laughs> hold on a second here. Now of course he the fumbling stuff is obviously you know worrisome and that he'll be in prison and stuff but the actual running backness of it all in terms of explosiveness and that sort of stuff and then flexibility had that in spades. So I just felt like or 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 another sort of thing is I know a lot of people measure they pay attention to like the uh, the ten yard split, you know, like oh ten yard split. It showed that's the real. Forget the forty yard dash. The ten yard split is what it is. And yet, a lot of times, from what I've seen, just doing comparing the ten yard split to the explosion numbers, is the ten yard split is really measuring explosiveness. It's not necessarily measuring speed, which happens after the ten yard split. Right. Right. I wish the we had forty yard dash both. is really. I was going to say, we had... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. go ahead, finish, Jim. 
All, all I was going to say was that the 40-yard dash, you know, a lot of people go, oh, well, when is a football player going to run a 40-yard dash? It's not really, you're not really measuring that. You're measuring how fast they are past 10 yards because after that 10 yards, the 10 yard is really the the 10 yards is really the explosion, the start of it, and then past that is where you actually get into how fast they are. Right. Sustained speed. speed. Right. Right. And we always That's use the term really speed versus speed versus quickness. You know, speed is right, right, how right. fast you can get when you get to that top gear. How good is your top gear? You know, quickness is how fast you can get to that top gear, how fast you can change direction and get back up to speed. Right. The ability to accelerate, or as I like to say, re-accelerate, which is one of the things that Derrick Henry could be a fascinating study because I think he's going to have a good 40 and some good other things. But I, I have a feeling he's going to be less than special in the short shuttle and three cone. But like I said, we'll see. Uh, because he seems to be a guy that has good, especially for his size, very good long speed, and he'll probably even have pretty good vertical, I'm guessing. Uh, but I'm wondering, he doesn't seem to be a guy that does a great job of re-accelerating. Like, if you make him stop, he seems to be stopped. And if you, even if you make him change direction sharply enough, he seems to struggle to get back, you know, to where he was, what, he was doing, what was I doing again? Uh, so it'll be an interesting study with him to see, you know, if one, just how big he is. He's, I think he's, you know, he's big. He's, he's, he's bigger big. than Gator Hoskins. I'll say that much. He's also might be bigger than Robert Kandice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you see Kandice tackle Henry. I mean, you know, he might be not far off. I'm just saying. I I I agree that Kim D.C. isn't as big as he's listed, and Henry may actually be heavier than he's listed and, and might be as tall as he's listed. He's one of the biggest backs I've seen in a while. I mean, I've seen a couple of backs his size, but not a bunch. You know, uh, you know Roger Vick from Texas A&M back in the old days and Texas Tech's uh, Rex Hadnot. You know, the back, though. I mean, these are old-school dudes. You don't see running backs like him very much nowadays in college football, which is part of what makes him so... You know, it's an interesting study. He's he's a sui generis. You know, he's he's sort of a one-of-a-kind item nowadays. Guys that look like him and can move like him get moved defense nowadays. You know, he's so, yeah, you're going to rush the passer, son. I mean, guys, I, I, I talked about this once where I said if, if Jim Brown came along now, if his height and power and speed, somebody would make him to a before outside linebacker. And plus with, you know, modern – nutrition and, and conditioning, by the time he left college, he'd be 249 pounds. But, uh, well, I guess we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this. So with a guy like him, a huge running back like that, based on the kind of work you do, what will be the, the numbers that will, will be a red flag to you? Like what would he, where would he have to fall for you to worry in what areas would he have to fall in certain areas for you to worry about his future? What kind of numbers would scare you? I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, with a with a big back like him. I think would be the the ones that would okay. kind of scare me. If you have a if you have a big guy that can't get off the line, then you mm-hmm. know I, I'm not really going to think that much about his forty time at that point because if he can't get off the line and can't get that little bit of movement, then he's going to be constantly working from contact. 
you know, there's a lot of guys that that have that size that do well once they get contact. But in generally, they they got to have some momentum behind them. They got to already have that head of steam. You know, Peyton Hillis was a great example of that. When 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 he got out into space, um, obviously before his every other year other than the one year. Uh, but <laughs> whenever he got out into space, though, he he could punish people. He could make people pay for Ooh. trying to tackle him in space. Ooh. And yes. You, you How much do you like football, that. right? Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but a, a, another good example of that I have another another good Lions example for that is we have Blake Bell on the Lions, who's that same type of runner. He's he's a big, powerful guy who likes to pay make people pay for trying to tackle him in space. Um, he's coming off his, his he had three leg surgeries this offseason. He had an Achilles, uh, I think it was a knee, and then another one. I think it was calf. But he had three surgeries this offseason, and you could tell because he was getting hit because the offensive line was crap. He was getting hit at the line. It's like if you make your your living, you know, from contact and from forcing contact and making people pay, if you don't have that head of steam, then you're just going to be stopped. You're just a bigger guy that's going to get stopped. There's no, you know, these are these are full blooded athletes running at you. They're going to stop you. Um, you need that little bit of momentum. So I, I think a low bench and a low vert um, for a bigger back like that, that that has to work on power would would scare me more than a low forty. I'd kind of expect a low forty. Actually, I think a forty is going to be fine. <laughs> I think you, I think that's which I think might fool some people. I mean, once again, we talked about the people who think you know who who put too much into the forty. I think he's going to run fast. Now, his ten yard split. Once again, we'll see what happens with that. May not be super great, but I think he's the kind of guy that has a really good second gear. I wouldn't be shocked if he had some almost Jackie. The name Jackie Battle was invoked. I wouldn't be shocked if he had some sort of Jackie Battle esque features as an athlete. Now I don't think he'd be quite as explosive in the broad and, and vertical as Jackie was. I mean Jackie Battle's broad and vertical for his size were freakish. I guess is the term, but certainly unusual. But I think he'll have. I think he'll be solid in most areas. Like I said, the things I'm worried about. I've always worried about. Like I said, it's just foot quickness. I mean, he hasn't shown me quick, quick feet, you know, and, and most of those really big backs who last, you know, Jerome Bettis and whatever big back you want to name, uh, who lasted. I mean, Eddie George had an r- amazing uh, – Steve will be back with us in a second for his four-legged furry children. But he had an amazing first six years of his career, and then he fell off uh, considerably, I think is the term I would say, in the last portion of his career. Even like, like Sean Alexander, who was, you know, sort of a smooth, you know, for a, for a big back, was a fairly smooth, agile big back. He fell off significantly and quickly in the last few years of his career. And I always wonder with those guys, it's a contact back. I guess is what you're talking about, a guy like Derek Henry. He's a contact back. Uh, he's, he makes contact with people. He often initiates it, in fact. But as you pointed out, the head of steam, and he's getting the head of steam consistently, not all the time, but consistently in his career at Alabama. He's usually able to, to get that three or four yards or a couple of yards clean so that when he makes contact with you, you're absorbing him as opposed to him having to absorb you. You'll know, basically see, one, when he gets to the NFL, he's able to get in a situation where he has that same sort of opportunity to get that head of steam. And then, two, like I said, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Blue tone and his um, short shuttle. Those are two things I, I'll be super excited to to see when those come out. Uh, same question for Montel. With guys who are unusual physically, much bigger, much smaller, much 
something or, you know, heavier, lighter, whatever. What things do you look for from a metrical standpoint to make you feel better or which things can make you feel worse about a prospect based on, on metrics? Um, productivity, uh, I think, makes you feel better because it helps you show that um, even, you know, because you look at the numbers and I can't, you know, help but keep, you know, referencing this, this quarterback project I've worked on. Uh, you've seen the shorter guys who are pretty good but not great, and you say, well, you know, in the NFL, it's it's only going to get harder. And there's a big-time correlation. I mean, I thought um, going into the project, if you were, you know, 6'1", probably too short, obviously there are exceptions, then you get to 6'2", you think you're okay, but actually 6'3", is kind of where you need to be. And, and in most cases, if you're 6'4", you're pretty well set uh, or, or, or taller. But uh, And I'm bringing that up to say this. Uh, if you look at... Uh, some of the shorter quarterbacks, uh, I don't have my sheet in front of me, but basically I believe there were maybe two to three quarterbacks that are, with the exception of Drew Brees, because we already you know know he's in the league and going. I want to say uh, there's two quarterbacks right now who will probably be starting this Sunday who are under 6'2", and that's Russell Wilson and Johnny Manziel. Uh, and that, no, that's two quarterbacks uh, within the last uh, 10 years who have been, you know, who, who are in the league and starting. Uh, and even back then, if you look from year to year, a lot of these quarterbacks that are under 6'2", just kind of there's a lot of the league and are backups. Uh, so it's uh, it's production that's going to show me that, you know, you can be one of those two guys. Uh, I wasn't a huge Manziel fan. Uh, I think tape kind of showed a lot of what, you know, some of his issues, his issues are with how well he can be sometimes with his, his, his downfield accuracy to get guys to make plays. Uh, but one thing you uh, you know you can't deny is you know he was pretty productive. You know, Russell Wilson, he was incredibly productive, especially when he went to Wisconsin. Uh, and that that matters too. Is you want to get a guy who's a great decision maker, you want to get a guy who can throw touchdowns, throw for a lot of yards, and who was doing more than just managing the game. And uh, those things kind of came out too. Uh, in, in other positions, it matters too. But to me, it's been a matter of uh, you know like if you're shorter, if you're slower. Uh, I got to look at the tape, too, uh, and I want to see, you know, do you, you know, do you play as short as you are, you know? Um, we, we know guys who have played smaller or who have played smaller than they are and definitely bigger than they are. You know, uh, Armstead maybe plays a little smaller than he is, wasn't as productive as I thought he'd be. And, I mean, in college, you know, obviously not in the pros. And then we've seen guys who, you know, are shorter. We've seen the Steve Smiths of the world, the, the Kenny Bells, who are, uh, you know, pretty thin, but they pack a punch, uh, and they uh, they've got great speed, and and you know can ball out on any given occasion. And vertical jump is good. Uh, you know, straight line speed's great too, and you can change direction. You know, so uh, to me, I try not to count height into my evaluation of a player unless it's really going to impede them from being great at the next level. And I kind of use production and tape and uh, you know some of those metrics to do those things. Uh, some guys have a you know more uphill battle than others. Uh, to me, as a running back, you've got to be pretty short for me to tell you you're too short because there's a lot of guys <laughs> who've been you know pretty solid you know and and still are. Uh, and I'd I'd like to say the same thing at receiver because I think there's still some talented receivers out there who are being overlooked because they're short. Uh, but you know there's some positions like I said at, at quarterback where it, it totally matters. You know I don't really want it to matter. There are guys uh, like in my studies I found. Uh, Chase Daniel to be an immensely talented passer, but uh, I think the height, he's kind of uh, backing up Alex Smith, and he might not get a shot. Um, and it's uh, 
it's really, you know, due to uh, due to height because he's uh, – I don't think he's even he, – yeah, he might not be 6'1". So uh, that's, uh, that plays a role, you know. Yeah, he's not 6'1". There's no might. There's no – no, he's definitely not 6'1". And he – if he's 6 feet, he's no more than 6 feet and one-eighth of an inch max. <laughs> because I remember watching him stand next to Drew Brees when he was in New, uh, in New Orleans, and Breeze was slightly taller than him. So that tells you everything you need to know because Breeze is one of the, as you point out, one of the shortest quarterbacks in the league. But I, th- I wonder how much of that stuff is teams don't have much patience for short quarterbacks, don't like them. I mean, I wonder how much of that sort of, we talk about confirmation bias, scouts don't yeah, stick their necks out. Go ahead. I Steve. still maintain. I still maintain Chase Daniel would be better than ten quarterbacks that are in the NFL starting. Mort, I I agree with you. I, I think you're right. Like <laughs> I said before, I looked at it and I'm I'm still surprised that he didn't get a shot. And I I even dropped a note in the chat. I'm like, you know, the one that looked good, good, the velocity, man, it was there. Uh, yep. You know, he's and and for a guy, you know, I mean, like I said before, I don't like to count mobility in my evaluation of a quarterback, but it, it needs to be said. You know, Chase Daniel could move. You know, he got good feet and uh, he had a great college career too. I'll never give up on Chase Daniel. <laughs> it just kills me because no one even drafted him. It's okay if someone said, "Hey, you know, I, I'll I'll get him in the six, I'll get him mm-hmm. in the seven. Someone drafted Mike Lennon. Someone drafted Tony Pike. Those are two of my lowest-rated quarterbacks ever. And and but no one wanted to spend a sixth on Daniel. Nobody. What? Nope. <laughs> That's the thing that killed me, though. That this guy was an undrafted free agent. But Team Cato couldn't get anybody to to let him hang on our practice squad, and I I guarantee he might not be better than ten starters, but he's better than ten second of course, stringers. Bill. I mean, yeah. I almost I almost literally cried watching Raheem Cato's tape last year because everybody was saying all these quarterbacks are bad. It's so bad. The desk is so horrible, and I'm watching this quarterback do everything. Read, read defenses well, deliver the ball well, and I just kept saying to myself, they're never going to accept them. They're never going to give him a shot because he's too short, he's too skinny, he's worth, he, you know, he has Mickey Mouse hands and arms, you know, like they're just not. He's never going to get a shot. Yeah, you didn't have to like to take yeah, part. a little bit more muscle. I think somebody would have gave him a chance, but why well, I said before. You know, you you make fun of Randy Gregory James, but man, he would have had he would have had Cato for a light snack. <laughs> like I'm, I'm I'm just throwing it out there, man. Like he, he did not want to see well, Randy Gregory. Well, he has to do the correct spin move to nowhere, though. That's the only thing. Ah, uh, ah, uh, the tragic, the tragic spin move. You know? Spin move to quarterback, not spin move to nowhere. Well, I feel like the spin move is susceptible to a certain amount of failure. You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's funny. I, I know I've got I've got some uh, followers who are Falcons fans. They were putting up uh, what happened to Big uh, Beasley spin move. They showed that spin move he did at Clemson. I said NFL offensive tackles happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he turns his back. He turns his back to them, and they're just waiting there on the other side. I mean, 
that because that's the thing, guys. Is like, sure, that was really mm-hmm. good against Tyrus Thompson. But then you look at how Tyrus Thompson tested, and you go, this guy's not even a reserve tackle at the next level in terms of long term success based on how he tested as an athlete. So that spin move might work against Tyrus Thompson, but it's not going to work against every NFL offensive lineman. Yeah, and people and people were shocked at you know how bad Jason Peters shut him down. That went. Uh-huh. You know, I'm not I'm not all that shocked. Jason Peters shut down a linebacker. Oh, <laughs> you didn't see that. Wait, but Steve, you didn't see the gif of of him beating Jason Peters that one time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure Jason said what oh. Peters was. Yeah, he had that one, one gift where he just bends the edge, doesn't use a real move, and and still almost doesn't get there. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the great thing about gift scouting, and we we could do a whole show about gift scouting, I suppose. But um, <laughs> you can find it's one the gift moment that keeps on gifting. Hey, Bill, we were just talking about it. I can show you a gift from Nate Subfield. <laughs> that will blow your mind. You know what's, you know what's better than gift scouting is, is uh, single-frame image scouting when you just take one or two frames. That's even better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, you, you know, uh, you, you're, you see one, there's a gift, a gift of one four-yard out. And, I mean, you know, you got people out here telling me that Revis is done. <laughs> Now, again, that was a really good play, but it's like, oh, my gosh, Watkins must have killed Revis. How much did he produce? And it goes, caught three for 14. And you go, wow. Like, now, of course, of course. I'm surprised Revis had the guts to pick up his game check after that one, huh? There's probably more, uh, and I'm not saying, that's the thing. Is everybody, well, maybe he would have done better as a quarterback. Blah, blah, blah. People want to make that excuse, and that's fine. Watkins probably could have done a little bit better than 3 for 14. But the fact of the matter is he only went 3 for 14. So it doesn't, I mean, sure, it's great that he beat him that one time for that four-yard first-down catch, but that was it. Like you're saying, Remus Island's done, and yet he well out the guy he was covering only went three for fourteen. I don't know; it just doesn't make sense because in terms of like the impact on the game, you know, like you say you, three for fourteen, all I hear is, "Well, he didn't shut him down completely." <laughs> I, I get that, but it's it's the one thing I've always and I've and I've talked to PFF a lot about this in terms of you know, PFF Steve, PFF Pete, and PF all the other PFF people. Uh, because the, I do like what they're doing and stuff like that, but when this Aaron Rodgers stuff happened and all that other kind of stuff, and like what, what Steve was talking about, touchdowns, surprisingly, I, I don't know if you guys knew this, but the more points you score versus the points you allow makes you more likely to go to Super Bowls, more likely to win your division, more likely to have a winning record, which makes you know, I'm, sense. I'm, I'm going to have to look at the math on that and see if that, that plays out. Exactly. So... <laughs> What I never understood is why they're like, oh, touchdowns, it doesn't matter. This guy's more responsible for this stuff. The bottom line is if you were really going to do a more uh, predictive, not even predictive, but just better correlation model for grading players, if a quarterback threw a touchdown, you'd give the quarterback points for that touchdown based on what he did to the average quarterbacks in the league. You would give uh, points to a – cornerback that broke up a pass or 
cause a sack or cause a fumble, you know, cause a fumble or something like that. Because turnover turnovers are a big part of win loss ratios as well, based on you know the the statistical models. So I don't know. It's just it's just crazy. <laughs> and of course the gift, yeah, the gift. You know, Watkins beat Revis at one time, and obviously Revis is not an island anymore, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> I heard, I heard he was yeah. I heard he was done. I mean, cut him, cut him. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, he but honestly he gave up. I mean, he gave up a you know about five six yards. But Rebus was getting depth and getting leverage to cut him off at the point. So I don't know. The angle of the camera was a little misleading. I guess what I'm trying to say. Well, and and I, I will say this is if you're a wide receiver with Sammy Watkins' explosion. There should be no NFL corner that you can't beat for four yards. <laughs> if four yards is what you need, I mean, you should be able to threaten him enough that he's got, you know, he's got to almost give you the four yards. I mean, because he can't touch you. <laughs> I mean, back when Bill and I were young, no way, no way, you, the corner, you couldn't get anything. A guy like Mike Haynes, he would squat on top of you and <laughs> keep his hands on you. That was a tough night at the office if you were a wide receiver. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but we live in you know, nowadays where guys have to play in space, and you have people still scout players as if that's not a thing anymore, which is the other sort of issue, I guess, is there seems to be a disconnect between how player, how people used to scout ten years ago versus what how they scout now. You know, especially like the safety position is that everybody wants to look for the big hitters at the safety position. Like, oh, I love when a safety comes down and knocks the clock off of a guy. Nowadays, that's a fifteen yard penalty or ejected. And as much as I might not like that decision because of just me being a pure red-blooded American and, you know, liking violence, but that's no longer the rules. The rules have changed. You have to play differently. I mean, if you look at the 70s Raiders, and we talked about this before, their defensive defensive back had names like like Dr. Death and the Assassin. The Assassin. (laughs) I mean, and it wasn't because, you know, know, those those were a bunch of nice guys out there. Or Lao Lao's Lao. I mean, you know, the and the thing is you get a guy Doctor Death or the Assassin. George Atkinson was what, Bill, maybe five eight or five nine, hundred and seventy five pounds. And he he's a little yeah, bigger than that, but he wasn't huge, <laughs> but he was a mean cuss and he really didn't like receivers. I mean, like it was a genuine disgust. Of course not. Because Lynn Swan <laughs> is soft. <laughs> he's, 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 that's just what he is, calling us fucking no, he, criminals. He was, the, he was the one that Chuck Nolte was a criminal element. Yes. <laughs> now, as much mm-hmm. as I absolutely loathed the Oakland Raiders growing up, I did admire, as an undersized defensive back myself, I admired some of the things that George Atkinson did and borrowed some of his techniques. But he, oh, his, what he could do with his forearm was an art. And despite his size, I mean, I don't know if anyone ever did any, you know, metrics on how many pounds per square inch or whatever he could, he could wallop 
people with that forearm of his for a little dude. He knocked a lot of guys out, not just Swan. But, yeah, he almost killed Lin Swan one time. I mean, literally almost killed him. Like, you know, strapped down to a backboard, wheeled out, you know, ambulance, the whole deal. Here lies Lin Swan, former. And, and, yeah, and, and that was another thing back in the, the back in the days. Guys like Atkinson, Cliff Harris, Cornell Green, Donnie Shell, they run. I mean, you want guys that fast. <laughs> I mean, they 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 could they could run. They weren't slow guys that couldn't. You know, they were too slow to play corner. <laughs> so they 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 moved at a lot of speed. So you you had you know speed and they. It's kind of, you know, what we said. A guy like Sandy Coates in the 70s, he was going to safety. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> and a, no one a really, really good one. about putting him at wide receiver. Because that's the type of guys that played safety in the 70s. They were guys that were fast and lower Big body pass, powerful. Catch. <laughs> right. I mean, no, they, you know, they, they, they were there to get to the ball. And then to make sure the wide receiver didn't catch it. <laughs> that, was, that was a safety description in the 1970s. And I'm glad we touched on this. And I don't know if you guys, I mean, I know, Jim, you do a certain amount of like sort of longitudinal stuff over time. I'd love to see, in terms of sort of compared to the average at corner, the average at safety like what the gap was in terms of athletic ability. I'm willing to bet the gap was pretty narrow 40 years ago. And I'm willing to bet the gap is much wider now in terms of 40, three-cone, vertical, basically all the change of direction, explosion, and speed metrics. I bet they were pretty close at one point. And like I said, I bet now that there's a, a, a play of greater gap, which is a, a terrible now, idea. If, if there's a player that's that's a corner that's that's only an average athlete at corner. There's a pretty good chance that they're going to get moved to safety. A lot of a lot of good safeties in the NFL. You know, Glover Quinn and the Lions, uh, Devin McCourty uh, on the Patriots. Guys that Malcolm Jenkins. In the corner. Yep. yep. Right. Guys, they just they just move them to safety. It's, it's like, well, you're a good athlete, but if you were a safety, you'd be a great athlete. Um, <laughs> And and that's that's kind of what they do nowadays. It's it's not so much that there's a huge gap between them. It's just if you have a guy that's just an okay corner, you can put him at safety and say, well, you're probably going to be better than okay back there. See, the problem is, and I don't mind so much if it's Malcolm Jenkins or Antro Roll or uh, McCourty. The problem is, and I hate to pick on Chris Conti yet again, but the problem comes when it's a guy who wasn't, you know, like, it's just a guy. Like, you can't put guys who are just guys at free safety, or you can, but I'll advise it, because you're going to give up, you know, those plays where people say, oh, my God, what happened there? Why is that guy, why is there no one in the picture? That's how that happens. That's how that happens. Mm-hmm. You can't hide people at free safety. You know, there's a lot of things during during training camp. Training camp, if anybody follows my stuff on training camp, I love training camp. I attend every year. But every year during training camp, there's one or two corners that people are like, well, 
you know, how do you think so-and-so is doing? It's like, well, he might not make the roster. You know, we're, we're deeper at corner. He's probably not going to make it. And I was like, well, we need to move him to safety then. It's like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. You can't just – and I really do I really do legitimately blame Madden for this because people are so used to having players that they're just like, oh, I want to keep him because he's, you know, young or whatever, so I'm just going to move him to a different position. It's like, yeah, it's not that easy in the NFL. Even moving from, like, uh, an outside tackle on the line and moving inside to guard, that's not that easy of a transition if you've only played tackle your whole career. You can't just do that. It's not like, oh, yeah, his run block rating is 90. I can move him inside. And it's like, this is real life. You don't have a run block rating of 90. Hey, I won a Super Bowl with your Marcus Russell on Madden 2007. So anything is possible. <laughs> I, I won with the Titans and Vince Young and Chris Johnson running the triple option. No, there's an idea. See? There you go. Anything is possible. <laughs> And then when they came up in the option, I just had Young stop and throw a jump pass to the tight end. And we only have two offensive plays back. <laughs> it's funny you should bring that up. Well, a couple of things up there. One, the here we are in the most the, – the game of football has never been more forward-pass-centric ever in its history. We're in a new era, a new frontier. We're in a new world. The ball is in the air. I think it was a team that was on track. Now, this may not hold, but I can't remember which team it is, but I think it was a team in the league that's on track to throw the ball over 70% this year. I can't remember which team it is, but there's somebody. We'll see if it holds up. There's some team that's probably on track this year. They're terrible at running the ball. <laughs> you might be right. But there's a team that's on track to throw the ball. I mean, I can't tell you how crazy that is. Because there was there were teams that were the reverse of that. Not in my lifetime, in, in Steve, in my lifetime, the um, the Dolphins of the late sixties, early seventies were almost the reverse of that. They might throw the ball twelve, eight, fourteen times a game, but they had three running backs. They were going to get at least fifteen touches, come hell or high water. Zonka getting, obviously, you know, the lion's share, but Mercury Morris is going to get his, right? Uh, Jim Kick was going to get his. You might, you know, Paul Warfield was going to catch a couple of balls, and you might get one disciple at tight end every now and again or whatever, or Mandich, Jim Mandich might get a couple of balls. That was it. We're going to run this thing. And, I mean, I remember when, when Chuck Knox, ground Chuck, was in the league, his teams would be 65%, 67%, 68% run. Uh, John Robinson, when he was with the Rams, and he had, of course, I don't blame him, if I had Dieter Brock at quarterback and Eric Dixon at running back, my, my choice is easy. I, I know what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> but, I mean, they ran the ball 60-something percent. But that wasn't that long ago. I'm not talking about the 1940s. I'm talking about the 1980s, early 1990s. And now there's at least one team that's on track to throw the ball from like 72 point something percent this year. That's yeah, pretty mind much. Mind-boggling. That's <laughs> mind- a couple of years ago, I mean, people think of Seattle and San Francisco as running teams. You know, a few years ago, they were really were 50-50 pass runs based on, you know, the ratios uh, of attempts. So 
uh, even a team like that where you go, oh, yeah, they're a running football team. Well, you know, 50-50. Right. And I think it might have been last year or the year before last, there was a year where we only had one team that was over 50%, which was a record. I mean, like we've never seen that low before. I think it was either this year or the year before. It was only, I mean, last year or the year before, where one team was over 50% uh, pass, over 50% run. I mean, which is just, like I said, mind-boggling that you have one or two teams, 30 or 31 teams in the league. And this year, who knows what the number will be, but <laughs> we might only have, once again, one team that's over 50% or at 50% uh, run. So to, to say that this guy is not quite good enough to play corner, we're going to slap him back there from free safety and hope for the best. I mean, that, that seems to be, the, to be the most reckless kind of thinking in the world. Well, it well, really doesn't make sense because, you know, me being a guy who, you know, looks at athleticism for corners and, uh, and safety, the best corners are guys that could be cornerbacks. Well, the best safeties could be cornerbacks. Like, sure. they have the athleticism of right. the corner. I mean, Dion Buchanan, right. for example, he tested like oh, a team in the league. <laughs> Only he's touring 19 or touring 18 know, he's pounds. A little, but, he's yeah. a little bigger. Now, of course, he didn't produce the same way that Tlaib. I mean, Tlaib, for example, you know, when he was at uh, Kansas, was more uh, breaking up the football a lot more, uh, you know, playing in that sort of way. You know, obviously wasn't playing safety, but the point I'm trying to make is that I think a lot of times people just assume that, well, the best athletes – now, of course, the best athletes are at cornerback, uh, mainly because, like, Patrick Peterson, based, based on what I do, he was the best in, like, every single thing compared to DBs in general. Uh, right. Revis is obviously really good. Charles Woodson, of course, played 60. But when he played quarterback, he was basically kind of like Revis to a certain extent. So – there is, like, the best of the best are at the cornerback position. But at the safety position, the guys that are really good, uh, the guys that we think of as elite, the Palomalos, the Eric Berries, the Earl Thomas, and those yeah. guys. Right. Those guys, are, they, those guys have athleticism that they can legitimately play at the cornerback position and not have athletic limitations, I guess. They're not poor athletes. Right. Well, there were debates yeah. about Ed Reed. There were debates about Ed Reed and, and Barry as well, about whether to move them to corner. You know, because it's, some people thought it would be a waste to have them play safety. Well, as uh, you know, Bill, it's kind of a – well, as you know, Bill, it's kind of a philosophy – not really philosophy, but with me at least, I think that you should put your best athletes in safety because they're the last line of defense is what we're seeing more and more with the passing game that having your smartest and your best athlete at safety is a lot safer at preventing things versus the best athlete at cornerback. You know, because if you understand, if you have your best athlete at the safety position, who's your smartest player as well, you can have slow safe, <laughs> slow cornerbacks. You can have, you know, eh, cornerbacks. And sure, they might give up big plays, but at least that safety is smart enough and is athletic enough with the range to make up for those mistakes. If your cornerback is Chris Conte, he's not making up for the mistakes. Well, he's actually making them. Oh, right. Here's the thing that keeps coming. 
the thing keeps coming home to me is that look at the best defenses. Look at the best defenses in the league. They all have good safety play. From from good to great safety play, the good defense. All the, I mean, Kansas City has Barry. Um, uh, you know, last obviously. year had Quinn playing at a high level. You know, Seattle has Earl Thomas. Right, who may be as good as it gets right now. And if not, it's Weddle. Um, but your defense can't be more than average if you are, even if you're great every place else, if you have problems in the safety position, even if you're good at everything else, even if you're great at everything else, you're going to be average at best overall as a defense because that's, like I said, that's where big plays go to, go to, go to be born is in bad safety play. The safety that gets too nosy comes too close to the line of scrimmage, or the one who's slow to react, even if he's back there, who's slow to pick up on. Oh, oh, that's going on over there. Well, I guess I need to. Oh, wow, look at him go. You, or the one who struggles in you know deciphering play action. I mean, those are. I'm shocked. I hate to I hate to pile it on yeah. with Conti, but that's been the problem with the Bears forever. <laughs> yes, yes, it has. <laughs> It's, it's always the last been time, they, they can't find a safety. And no matter how good they yep. had when they had a good front, they had good linebackers, they had Tillman yep. in his prime and Jennings playing well, and yep. nobody at safety. Since Mike Brown got hurt um, the Super Bowl year uh, and, and could never get healthy again, they have not found <laughs> – they still are looking for his replacement now 10 years on, basically. It's amazing to me that – there are certain positions that the NFL does not. I mean, once again, everyone talks about, you know, the professionals, whatever, but there are certain positions that the NFL seems to struggle to to evaluate. At a, consistently seems to struggle to evaluate. I see on a regular basis people not, and maybe it's because of the position I played, maybe it's because I just hate to see, I'm a defensive-minded guy, and I hate to see defense completely go by the wayside. But, I see safeties who, like I said, in the era with Steve and I first started watching, these guys would not only be starters, they would be second string. They'd be, you know, practice squad or maybe special teams. But, I mean, there's no way these guys would have started in the 70s or the 80s. Charlie Waters would be a top five safety today, and it took him five years to get on the field and back. Yeah, he's (laughs) easily... Easily, right? Easily. I mean, I'm thinking about some of the guys that, I mean, I guess, personally, I'm spoiled. I guess I realized I was born in a golden age of safety play. You know, I would turn on the TV and I would see Ken Houston, Paul Krause, Donnie Schell, as you just mentioned, all the various guys with the Cowboys. Um, you know, um, uh, the Assassin, right? Jack Tatum. I mean, it was just everybody. Everybody had safety. You know, Larry Wilson, like, I grew up watching Hall of Fame safety sprinkled across the league. And I guess maybe I didn't realize that, you know, this wasn't the way, this wasn't normal. Because now I look, we've got Eric Weddle, and then we've got all the guys in Kansas City. I mean, I can't say, Kansas City's uh, uh, Eric Berry, we've got Earl Thomas, and then we've got, you know, McCourty, we've got all those guys in um, the desert out in Arizona. You know, they've got a bunch of good safeties. Like, that's – they're hogging them over there. And then – Doc Woodson. 
Chuck Woodson is 39. He was drafted the same year as Peyton Manning, yep. Matt Hafferbeck, and Randy Moss. And it yep. wouldn't be a crime if he went to the purple. <laughs> Right, that's that's my point. That's what I'm driving at. Because right. our defense Char- works because of because of him. If we didn't have Woodson, game over. I mean, right. We if you look at how the Raiders' defense is constructed, we have a couple good guys on the defensive line that have trouble getting to the quarterback either because of inexperience or because of scheme. We have. I'm not going to talk about the interior line. We have linebackers that are. Well, we have linebackers that play the linebacker position. I don't say that much. We have <laughs> we have cornerbacks. Travis Carey is actually pretty decent. DJ Hayden is not decent. And Nico Thorpe, for all the love that I know, there's people that love Nico Thorpe, but Nico Thorpe is basically kind of a third string, fourth string slot guy. Uh, you know, at, on well, any other team. He's, a, he's an upgrade from, from Marcus Van Dyke, I guess is what they're pointing out from, from those yeah. days. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have Woodson and then whoever the other safety is, which we've been – that guy's been a ro- – we've had a rotation there for a while. First it was Nate Allen, then we tried Tevin McDonald for a little bit. Of course, we cut him. and then put it. So, like, our defense, which is not – it's not a great defense. Don't get me wrong. It's not a great defense. We give up big plays in the middle of the field. But – we're not always giving up touchdowns. And a lot of that is because of Charles Woodson. Who plays nickel linebacker in certain situations. He covers the slot. He plays deep middle. He plays, you know, deep half. I mean, he is an amazing – I mean, he is. He really is the last of a dying breed because he, Ed Reed's gone. Uh, I mean, it's, you know – It's, it's, a, it's, a, metal, thankless, but. it's a thankless position – he doesn't. He just doesn't get enough credit, and I'm surprised he's even still playing because the fact of the matter is, you know, I mean, come on, we're the Raiders, you know, like, you, you know, even Patrick Willis gave up on the 49ers, so, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. <laughs> and remember when Eric Reed was going to be the next great one? What happened to him? Eric Reed. Eric. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, remember he's going to be the next play. great one? Yeah, he's athletic, he's but he's not. But he's not like. I mean, I wouldn't say he's great. He's no, athletic. that's the point, though. But my point is, when he's coming out, remember all the, you know, hey, you know, well, when Kenny he was coming out, and, everybody said he was. Uh, well, I remember that draft class. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe you guys don't remember it differently. I don't know because, as you know, I usually look at draft classes very differently than. But when Eric Reed was in that class. Most people thought it was a surprise he was drafted in the first round. Most people had him going in the third round, you know. But he ended up going in the first. And people were shocked by it, kind of, some people. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. There were there were the Eric Reed believers who were all about how great he was. <laughs> but a lot of people thought, yeah, about third round. They they looked at him about there. There was there was a pretty big divide in what people thought about Reed. Yeah. Well, he was big and he was athletic, and he came from LSU, and he supposedly been catch supposedly had been coached really really well, and used to NFL concepts and you know, all the stuff that the, the, we talked about how there is still a fair amount of bias you know, that goes on. Now, if you're an SEC kid, right, and you're a starter, and your coach has a bunch of friends in the NFL, I'm not going to name you. 
But there's <laughs> right. But there's some SEC coaches that have a bunch of NFL coaching friends, and they just they just pick up the phone. They just pick up the, like a Sandy Dave. They just pick up the phone. And, say, <laughs> and these kids get drafted when there's better players. Oh, okay. True, but so they talk the same, about heart on the phone. On the phone with Saban. Saban. Which it's funny that Saban would talk about Hart considering he doesn't have any, but he didn't go, Well, he didn't test that well and all of a sudden he'd go, But he's a really hard worker and he's gonna work his butt off and he's become the best safety in the NFL. I guarantee it. <laughs> and you never know. Uh, and, and keep in mind, and let's and let's be real here. Alabama, like other SEC teams, they've had a few hits here and there. I mean, you know, they've had some successful players come out of the program. It's just we get into the mentality that all of them are great, all of them are all pros, when in reality the all pros come around, those are rarer than anything else. Like, you don't get in a situation where this guy's an all pro and then the next guy up is an all pro and the next guy after that, that doesn't work that way. You know, there's that guy and then there's these other guys. And you decided to draft one of the other guys because you thought it was this guy. But that guy was already drafted. Yeah, that's that's actually uh, brings up a really really interesting point that I always found funny around draft time is when people start comparing present players to players that were at the same position on the same team and wore the same uniform but are nothing like each other. And right. They still get <laughs> they still get compared. I mean, you bring up Alabama, Alabama running back. You know, every time another Alabama running guy comes out, they're going to compare him to whoever the previous one was. And it's like, I remember T.J. Eldon getting compared to Trent Richardson. Nope. Was like, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, where where do you even get that comparison from? Like, what, what part of how they played makes you say, oh, they're exactly the same? It's like, no. They no, wear the they, same uniform. Well, I mean, it's, you have a I mean, five foot nine, five foot nine, you know, <laughs> running back, and you have a six foot one <laughs> running back. They you have a power running say. back, right? Versus a guy who's smooth. I mean, say what you want smooth, about Yelvin. Yeah. He's he's a yeah. smooth, not terribly powerful, but he's smooth and he's versatile. I was not a huge Yelton fan, but I did notice some things about him that made me feel like he was better suited to the NFL than some of these other Alabama running backs that, you know, exactly. people got all excited about. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, and that's what I was saying is I never really, you know, as an athlete, Yeldon wasn't, you know, very good. But I knew in the right hands he could still be productive. You know, when I found out, you know, the Jaguars drafted him, I'm like, well, hello. <laughs> you know, like this is a team – that I mean, your answer was you know Denard Robinson and Toby Gerard. You know that was none of that was very good for you. You know, and so I knew that's not, that's not like, a bad answer. That's, 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 that's the best back on that roster that's just by showing don't, up. Don't make fun that's, of the white Stephen Jackson. You will not remember uh, the name. <laughs> oh, white Stephen Jackson. White Jackson. very very late career Stephen Jackson when he was <laughs> all banged yeah. up and I know that Stephen Jackson. Yeah, I just you know it's uh, yeah he, he was lightning and Adrian Peterson was thunder and you know everything was great you know you had uh, you guys you 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 talk about the absolutely nothing like each other 
Comparison. Zach Zenner is probably more like Steven Jackson. Wasn't it Brian Leonard that um, Rutgers fillback, were they? I feel like oh, they were, I, I think they were a lot closer than him and yeah, Steven well, Jackson. Well, the thing about Brian Leonard, the thing about Brian I mean, Leonard is that the NFL didn't quite know what to make of him. Uh, they tried to make him to a fullback or somebody, you know, he was a guy that overlapped, obviously, with Ray Rice at Rutgers. And Brian Leonard was the man at first. When Ray Rice first got to Rutgers, Brian Leonard was the man. He had set, I think, the, uh, he set a couple of records. I think he set a record for total yards, like uh, scrimmage yards. I think he also may have set the rushing record for a season the year prior to, you know, Ray Rice popping up there. And then they were in sort of a timeshare. And then the next year, you know, Ray Rice was the man. And Leonard was sort of a third down back and did some blocking and stuff like that. The thing is that he was never a fullback. I mean, the fact he was white and big didn't make him a fullback. He never embraced it, and he wasn't good at it. The third down back. And he didn't role, want to be good at it. No, he did not. <laughs> no, he he didn't have the <laughs> neck roll mentality. You are correct about that. He he never said to himself, "I cannot wait to smash my face into." A guard, that or not guard, but a, a, a D tackle or a, or a, or a Mike linebacker. That he didn't live for that. Because I, like, I can't wait so much. Right, yeah, I can't wait to blow up. Mentality. No, he well, wasn't you, thinking. I can't wait to blow up Navarro Bowman. That wasn't his mindset. No, I would say uh, this draft class. I think we may have gotten one that was worse than Yeldon and the other Alabama backs. Uh, what about the Jalen Smith? And Patrick Willis comp. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I've, I've, I've tried to shoot that down. I, I realize there's nothing more I can do about it. That was Daniel Jeremiah making that comp. Yeah. No, actually, yeah. it actually was Matt Miller. Actually, it was actually Matt Miller, but, but I, I, and Wait, it, he also gave that comparison. Yeah, that was Miller's comparison. Sh- yeah, yeah. Miller likes to compare. If you ever hear a guy compared to a San Francisco player, Miller oftentimes – it's nothing against that, Miller. It's just that oftentimes when you make the comparison to a player, it's usually a former 49er player, even if there's really not much of a comparison there. Well, I mean, they play in the same position. They're both black. Uh, you know. They're both one. I mean, that's another one of my favorite <laughs> The this guy has dreadlocks. That other guy had dreadlocks. <laughs> Boom! They must be similar players. Uh, Todd Gurley and Trent Richardson again. Boom! Um, got got comped, and that was that was like the <laughs> only thing. Yeah, the only thing they had in common is similar hairstyles. There you go. <laughs> That's the hairstyle. <laughs> like, a lot, lot of lot of hair scouting going on up there. I wonder if wonder if anybody's going to try to do anything with uh with Joel Stave based on his hair. I'm surprised. <laughs> Joel Stave's got some great hair. He's he got great awesome hair. hair. But I'm surprised that not many corners have tried to get Rich Sherman here. Don't you think? Because that might get him. Right. <laughs> At least you got to look like him. Brett Brett's got the hair. You know, maybe that maybe well, that'll help him. Well, Richard, I think, I think Richard, Trey Wayne's tried to match with us. Richard Sherman has made oh, yeah, some hay, though, for tall corners who, yeah. you know, weren't as athletic as Richard Sherman. But <laughs> he, got Keith, he got Keith McGill drafted. I mean, he, <laughs> yep. Don't, don't <laughs> remind him. <laughs> and, um, 
and don't forget uh, Mr. Jean Stanley Jean Baptiste. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's now on the sitting Lions, over, sitting over on the Lions practice squad right now, and <laughs> yeah, they're they're going to do nothing with him. <laughs> well, no, that's that's so unfortunate. No, I mean, just the fact that they they took the bait. And they they need a corner. They, well, they needed him. I mean, before they of went course got, they got they top. needed. That's the thing. That's the point, Montel. They needed a corner desperately. This is the Saints we're talking about, and yeah, he went with yeah. probably one of the least ready ones imaginable. <laughs> so, exactly. You're talking about they went with they gave a lot of money. They went with a bad she, corner, which they had plenty of bad corners. <laughs> They signed Brandon Browner, who's been probably the worst corner this year. Yes. And he's been one of the worst corners, but he's been one of the best. He's the most penalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most yeah. penalized. Brandon Browner, right, right now, you know, if you need, if you need uh, some yards on the Saints, you need a first down, all you got to do is take your tight end and run in deep versus Brandon, Brandon Browner. And he's got a decision to make, a business decision. <laughs> he can either grab him and get a penalty, get a five-yard penalty, or he can tackle him and get a pass interference, <laughs> or he can just like score a touchdown. <laughs> Only three yeah. options, Preston Browner. <laughs> be they, actually got a, they actually got a nice gem, the opposite side of him. <laughs> well, what, what Brandon Browner has illustrated is the greatness of Earl Thomas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> because he ran around never to carry a receiver. I mean, it's like, here, in this seven-yard box, I'm going to just beat the crap out of you, and then I'll let you go. And Earl Thomas will clean up the mess. But now he's in a situation. Yep. Right. right. Now he's in a situation where And Byron Maxwell that. might be proving the same point. <laughs> yep. yep. Ding, 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 ding. What did you see the same thing about Walter Thurman? Well, I mean, in, in with Maxwell's case, at least Brandon Browner will tackle the guy, you know, the key, you know. Yep. Brandon Browner at least, like, you know, wants to be physical, you know. Yeah, he just, you know, he's just very limited, you know, in, in terms of his athletic ability. Byron Maxwell, if you get a, if you get a wide receiver that's even the least bit, Got some, you know, mean in him. <laughs> I don't want none of that. Well, keep All in right. mind. <laughs> yeah, go if ahead. Smith, if if Steve Smith Senior was over Byron Maxwell, Byron Maxwell Ooh. would be. <laughs> he would be like, you know, he would like to sick. Or well, Steve Smith would do nothing. Or... Get the torn Achilles. Right, but he, he's saying that if yeah, that. He, he might also tear his Achilles to try to get out of that situation. The, the 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 fact is that we were talking about the the role of metrics, and Jim, I wasn't here spinning out of control. Jim, when you're talking about how to identify skill sets based on the work you do, if somebody wants to get dig out of that safety hole that we've been talking about, that so many teams all but a handful of teams have. I mean, two-thirds of the teams in this league have poor to abominably bad safety play. What things this one? From a metrical standpoint, what should they look for in someone who would work well as an NFL safety? 
well, everything that we discussed, uh, explosiveness, speed, uh, dynamic speed, you know, you want guys that are explosive, you want guys that are relatively fast for their size, and you also want guys that are relatively dynamic for their size, uh, for the most part. Um, guys that run 4-5 are fine as long as they have explosiveness to make up for that fact, uh, if you will. Uh, also, in terms of production, I mean, one of the things that I've done is, you know, I've done a lot of uh, market share production metrics. And surprisingly, the two main uh, metrics for safety, which had really, really decent uh, correlations, you know, top 25 percentile uh, or higher uh, for multiple pro safeties, was market share interceptions and market share pass deflection. Uh, just for example, the, the top 10 percentile of pass deflection for market share and safety had safeties like Earl Thomas, uh, Eric Weddle, uh, Nick Collins, Glover Quinn, um, Harrison Smith, uh, you know, guys like that. Uh, and when you think about the success that they've had, it's been a combination of one, being really good playmakers, which is where the market share interception comes in, in the end, because you want guys that are making plays on the football and turning the football over, but you also want guys that are breaking the football up at the catch point, which deals with pass deflections. Uh, and that's why guys like Eric Waddell, guys like Earl Thomas, and, you know, the few others I just mentioned have been so good is that not only do they turn the football over to the interceptions, they also prevent plays from being made by breaking up the plays at the catch point. So those why are kind of think, the two main things. Yeah. Why do you think it is uh, Walter Thurman's playing so well at safety now? Oh. Who? I mean, it's Walter Thurman. Why is he playing safety? No, why is he playing well lately at safety? Is it is it because he was a former corner, or I don't know. That's what I'm asking. Uh, coaching, maybe scheme. He had a kind of a similar career arc as, as Glover Quinn did, where he started out at corner and they tried playing him there, and he wasn't terrible. Uh, and then they moved him to safety, and he's done better. Um, you, uh, it's it's pretty common now to convert corners to safety, but it's always been better when they do it early. And the later that people do, the slower that transition up the ladder goes. But right. it, 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 the the move from corner to safety, when it works, tends to work out really well. That's just something yeah. I've always thought of. Is that I'm not trans, always that late transition. Yeah, I'm not always against it, but I'm against it when, like I said, you're trying to hide the guy, because where there's no worse place you're trying to hide a an inferior player I just, that I can think of. I mean, it's just crazy to me that you think somehow you're going to get away with putting this player that you don't trust at corner at free safety. What? 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 You know, that's just, it's just like, it's the most counterintuitive, like like, like Jim said, there's the last line of your defense. Here's the, the eraser, the person who's, who can make it right when everyone else has made it wrong, and you're going to put someone there that is not one of your best players. Like I said, it just bothers the heck out of me. So, yeah, I'm not a, against moving someone there if he's a really good player. You know, McCordy, Jenkins, and, you know, even to a slight lesser extent, Antrell Roll. 
But when you have Weddle. Yeah, well, well Weddle was already I mean, he wasn't moved. He played a little bit of corner in high school and college, but he was primarily a safety. <clears throat> Charles Woodson? Now Woodson is a guy that had an entire close to NFL career at one position that didn't move late. So that that's one of the guys I'm talking about, right? So but but he's an elite athlete. You know, he's a tremendous athlete. That's why he's able to play and play now at the age of thirty nine at such a high level, because he's special. And the, like I said, you can fix a lot of things on a even if your defense is kind of bad, if you have really great safety play, it can fix a lot of things. You can get better against the run right away because you have guys that are really good at run support if they're great safeties. And you can be better against the pass because you have guys who, should be, who have great instincts and, and really great athletes that can get to plays and shut them down, turn what would have been an 80-yarder into a 12-yarder. That saves you points and wins you games. So I, just, I hope that there will be an investment in the energy and time in finding good safeties again. Because like I said, I mean, I, like I said, I didn't realize as a kid how spoiled I was just to True. look. But, I mean, just... but the thing is, the thing is, though, Bill, is like, like I was talking about, is a lot of times now when people are evaluating safety positions, the things that they're looking for, the traits, if you will, that they're looking for the safety position are not always – like whenever I hear somebody talk about a safety on tape, I never hear about great solo tackling ability. I never hear about great, you know, great angle there to, to, to make up ground and make the play. Like I never hear that sort of stuff as much as I hear, oh, check, him, check out this big hit he made here. Uh, check out uh, – look, he took the, the helmet off of the wide receiver here. Uh, it's like the Calvin Pryorness of it all, I guess is what I'm trying to say, where, you know, Calvin Pryor obviously made a lot of big hits during that year, um, had reasonable ball skills. Wasn't the greatest ball skill, but reasonably good ball skills. But he was not the best solo tackler. He wasn't the best in terms of understanding of angles and that sort of stuff. But everybody loved his hitting ability. So it's like, hey, Bob Sanders was good 10 years ago, so obviously he could be good today. And I'm not necessarily sold on that 100%, I guess. To where the NFL is now versus what it was 10, 20, maybe 30 years ago. And that's right. one of the things that, that that makes me look at a guy like Jeremy Cash out of Duke. And it, it really affects how you're evaluating him because he's good against the pass. It's not like he's, he's like a, a straight in-the-box safety. But a lot of the things that he does well that he's really good at that are you know, legitimate safety skills just aren't really valued that highly by a lot of teams during the draft time. Like you said, they look for those big hits. They look for, you know, the big game-changing picks and things like that. Um, and then you have a guy like him who generally takes good angles, and they they use him in multiple facets of the game, both as a pass rusher and, and in the box, outside of the box. You know, you have guys like that that it's going to be tough when it, when it really comes down to draft time to, to slot him somewhere because even though he's good at what he does, Teams don't value that as much anymore. Um, and you see that a lot with, with running backs, with the whole it's getting devalued thing, which I'm not a big ascriber to that, but a lot of people are. Um, inside linebackers is another one. You know, Teams don't really value them as much anymore. So it's kind of hard to slot 
guys like that into a role when teams don't seem to value that role as much anymore. Well, when you say they're devalued, I just don't think there's that uh, good of players at those positions like there used to be. You talk about Luke Keekley, people are still trying to find a new, another Luke Keekley. There just hasn't been that kind of talent there at the point. Same with the running backs. Uh, it's hard to find the next Adrian Peterson. Hey, guess what? If there was a guy drafted in the first round, it's not devalued. They're just not running backs that are good enough, like what we're used to seeing. Right, which I would agree entirely. Like I said, I'm not a big ascriber to the whole devaluing thing. I agree with you entirely. It, it has to do with the talent that we've had coming out the past couple of years. Right. But that's it. The the what I mentioned about cash and and about inside linebackers, which I, I, is one that I think you'll probably agree with, is that generally, even when there are, they don't tend to get taken super high in the draft. Teams tend to look at those skills and they think, well, I need a pass rusher more. I need a tackle more. Uh, tackles right. always get pushed up in the draft, whether they deserve to be or not. <laughs> and the same thing, the same thing's true of pass rushers. Pass rushers always get pushed up in the draft, and then quarterbacks, gabbers. Yes. Right. Yes. And and it's just, funny you mentioned you mentioned safety and inside linebacker. They get pushed down in the draft, and these are also positions where they sometimes will have just I guess lower expectations for lack of better putting it. But I think if you demand greatness at those positions, you're much better. You're much better off. It, it's nice to have corners, and it, hey, who doesn't want to have great corners? And yeah, pass rush is awesome, and sacks are cool, and people get all excited about it. But you're not going to sack quarterback on every play. You've got to firm up the middle. I mean, that's the center line. The spine of your defense is you know your D tackles, your inside linebackers, and your safety. If oh the middle gosh. of your, if the middle Sorry, of your Dane. defense, Dane you know, Rumbler of CS, or CBS, yeah. just compared to Laquan Treadwell to Des Bryant. Well, that's not, that's not news. People have been calling Laquan Des for two years now. Three years. Yeah, three three years. Right, it's three years yeah. now. In fact, I think I, I said that three years ago on this radio show. He'd go you are correct. Him. And you are has correct. Paxton Lynch going number three overall so far, which, which could happen. Cleveland Brown. Which, which could, could happen. happen. Who did that the Lions pick at one? <laughs> Laramie Tunzel. Laramie Tunzel? Okay. That's I can live with that. Tennessee Titans, Joey Bosa. <laughs> we have the Ravens at I... four picking Jalen or MC. Ooh. Oh. 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 Jared Goff. Goff. He's elite, Bill. He's elite. Oh. Taylor Ramsey's elite, I tell you. Oh, Jared God, Goff to the Niners. Ronnie that's, Stanley that's, to the Chargers. That'd be a good pick. Uh, that Robert Kidd out of Ole Miss to Jacksonville. That actually be pretty good, yeah. Miles Jack to day? Chicago. Laquan Treadwell to the Cowboys. Sure, why not? <laughs> Connor <laughs> Cook to the Texans. Please, Jack, that's an easy one. Please, Jack Cochran. Jack Cochran <laughs> to the Chiefs. Uh-huh. Rest in peace, Alex Smith. Exactly. <laughs> Vernon Hargraves to the Bucks. Ooh. Andrew Billings to the Redskins. Oh, that far? Oh. Well, I don't think he will in the real draft, but. 
Shaq Lawson out of Clemson to the Dolphins. Really? Shaq Lawson? Really? That's yeah, he's a fourth player. Fourth player. Oh, that's so petty. <laughs> he's a fourth Hello? player. Yeah, I'm here. Wow. Jalen Smith to the Bills. This is a Titan take. That's all. Oh, Rex is Oh, Sosa. Yeah, more Titan. Let's let's cut to the chase here. <laughs> Wait, the the yeah. Titans took Bosa. Yep. Yeah. I'm good. Heard, yeah. I'm good. I'll take that Leonard, <laughs> Leonard Floyd to the Eagles. Makes sense. And Kenny Clark to the Saints. Mm. Okay. Kendall Fuller to your Raiders, Jim. Ah! Uh-oh. Yes, Uh-oh. 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 Oh, boy. Uh-oh. Deshaun Ruffin. Uh-oh. Deshaun Ruffin. Another corner that can't turn. <laughs> well, welcome to the Fuller family, Jim. You know, I, you know, I'm a Bears fan with Kyle. We can have him. Oh, this is great. This is great. Ashawn Robinson to the Seahawks. Ooh. Mackenzie McKen- Alexander to the Rams at twenty. Oh, that would that they would be immensely lucky with that. They they would love that. They would, so the Raiders take Fuller over Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have questions about Fuller, but I'd rather take Alexander over Fuller. Uh, the Colts, DeForest Buckner. <laughs> oh man, they should be so lucky. Yeah, that doesn't make sense because they usually don't take solid players at that spot. So, <laughs> <laughs> New York Giants select uh, Reggie Ragland. Okay. That, hey, that's the first sure. time they took in a linebacker in the first round. Pursuit linebacker, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the Steelers, Jaron Curse out of Clemson. Oh, boy. Jets with Ezekiel Elliott. What? How did Ezekiel Elliott get that far? How did he Wait, get that well, far? Who, who, who gets Elliott? Minnesota Vikings, Michael Thomas. Oh, the Jets would love him, but I don't think he makes it that far. I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, wait, what pick is that that you have him going? Wait, what number is that? Uh, that's 24. Yeah, I mean, you got to look at it from the perspective. There's only a handful of teams that really aren't set. And then if you cut that in half, those are the teams that accept that they're not set. <laughs> running back, you know. Well, Raiders, who's our, who's our, who's our running back? Latavius Murray. Murray. Yeah. And then you, you, guys are, you guys are giving carries to Taiwan uh, Jones. Too, Taiwan right? Jones. Yeah. I mean, you guys are trying something. I don't know if it's working, but you guys are trying something. Well, you got Roy Hero in the background. Minnesota got Michael Thomas at 25. Okay. I'm sorry, did I miss the Bears pick? Did did I miss the Bears pick? Um, I'm sorry here, guys. Uh, I don't even see. Oh, the Bears pick was early. Was who? Let me see. Yeah, no, this is probably a while ago. A Miles Jack. Miles Jack. Hmm. I mean, if he if he is what I'm hoping. You do need safety help. I mean, you know, I will give you that. <laughs> In Atlanta, they gave <laughs> the other record. So Cash did it in the first round. I think yeah. this is a great mock. <laughs> Cincinnati got Corey Coleman out of Baylor. That late. That late. This is what, pick 28? 27. 
Man, I don't think Oregon's going to measure well. That's funny. It's almost trading up to get this guy. Arizona got <laughs> Noah Bent out of Eastern Kentucky. Oh, yeah, he's mm. dominating Eastern Kentucky. Well, not really statistically, Wait, but he's doing well. Hold on. Hold on. He's Noah holding his own. In the 29 first? Adolphus Washington to the Broncos. What? Again, back to he's back. A, he's a force player. Oh, oh gosh. And then it's at number 30. <laughs> number 30, the Panthers got Emmanuel Ogba at Oklahoma State. Okay. Mm. 31, hey. forfeited to the Deflate Gate scandal. Oh, yeah. That's true. 32, Jaron Reed, Alabama. Oh, really? What? Man, two wow. Bama Miami go in the first round? Yep. Oof. Now, Robinson oh. makes sense because... Well, he doesn't really make sense. But he <laughs> makes sense because Seattle tends to like Allen Branch-ish defensive tackles. And Ashawn Robinson is Allen Branch-ish. You know, if you think about it, yeah. how they play. Playing style. Uh, I, I have to. I have to say, I thought that was a great mom. I take it today. <laughs> yeah, you would. Oh, really, more? Really? You're not even biased here. Bosa went to number two. That's all he cares about. Uh, <laughs> I swear, the Raiders. Another every mock. <laughs> every mock the Raiders get keep getting mockies. Eh, cornerback. I don't get it. Kendall Fuller and oh. You guys are high enough to get the guy. Well, you like we get mock Trey White, like that was one, and then now Kendall Fuller. Uh, you guys, hey, Jimmy, I mean, you you want the corners that can't turn. I would I mean, if Alexander was on the board when you guys. I came want a safety. I want. I want a Jeremy Cash. I want a Von Bell. Why can't I have these things? Well, people still don't understand how good Von Bell is yet. I've been telling people he's a first-round player in my mocks. I think in both my mocks, I have Von Bell going top 20. For me, he's an early uh, second round. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm telling there. you guys, man, if, if, when, when Ramsey comes off the board, or no, when Cash comes off the board of safety, uh, you're doing yourself a disservice. Which surprised me if Sue Craven was not picked at all in that first round. I I think if you can get him after the first, then you might – have some value, you know, with your, your sewer cravings experiment. You know, uh I like Sewer Craven safety. He's a he's a he he looks like a guy who's gonna test well. I think he's a great athlete, I think personally. But I don't uh I mean, you know, in my back I think it was the Notre Dame game. He didn't give me nothing in that game. I watched it and I'm just like, okay, he's getting blocked, he's getting blocked and I think he made like one tackle, maybe two. Um but but I would definitely well, every player is going to give you that kind of game. Every yeah, my only experience well, with it him is, is my first game. Yeah, Craven's playing backer. That, that's more of my point is that if that was just the one game where he was off, I'd be like, cool. But there's been a couple games where I've seen him kind of disappear. and well, They already played off the You know that game you just, you just talked about, uh, Montel, where, you know, mm-hmm. you did nothing and you got – that's what happens when you put a safety over the top of Ronnie Stanley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he couldn't. No, you're right. Cause he and then you add on the pass rush. He has the six foot one safety to be a pass rusher. That works with Jalen Ramsey. That works with Jeremy Cash. It doesn't work with Tua Craig. Yeah, but and that's what I'm saying. So if you put him at safety, 
Sure. I just, um, I don't know. Maybe it's just, you know, some of the things I've seen. I just want him to be maybe a better tackler. I just feel like there are some scenarios where he's not taking the best angles. Maybe it's just because he's, you know, at the line of scrimmage. I don't know. But if I the thing is, The thing is, Montel, he doesn't know what he is. He was a safety. Now he's a linebacker. Who's, like, he doesn't know what he is. So he's confused. But that's oh the thing. If you're a great player, no is. matter what you are, you're producing, aren't you? If you're playing out of position, well, kind of like with, um, you know, we, we talked about Shaq Thompson last year. You said he's better off as a safety. Right. I disagree. But he was he was productive regardless, right, to an extent. Um, I know he didn't feature so many tackle numbers. Well, he wasn't. Elite. I mean, this the thing about Shaq Thompson. Well, I mean, the thing Dang about Shaq Thompson. What? Dan Brugler. He has number one, Joey Bosa to the Lions. Yeah, and, I, I would too. I think they'll go a pass rusher. And it, this draft is deep enough to tackle to where they can come back at 33 and still get a good one. Or 32, you mean, because. <laughs> no, oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't like that. I don't like that mock. <laughs> Throw that mock out. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, honestly, I think Bosa and Tunsil are a little on a level of prospects above everybody else. So I mean, I, and they have Lermy Tunsil going number four to the Niners. Jalen Ramsey, number three, good to for the them. Good for them. Robert Nicodemchi, or however you say his name, to the Jaguars at Kim DJ. Kim DJ, I will oh. never get it right. Um, and they have back-to-back quarterbacks. The two, the two hundred and seventy-pound defensive tackle, Robert Kinzicki. Yeah, hey, he's been, a, he's the net. Hey, you wait, Steve. When he comes in and and six foot one, two hundred and fifty seventy pounds, he's he's just not gonna be. <laughs> Can you imagine? The, <laughs> no one has ever been, and, and maybe this is just. Since I've been closely watching, has anyone ever, ever, ever been that off the mark in terms of someone's height and weight? Someone is 50 pounds pretty, less than, yeah, than but the average. He only has so much. He can only stuff in so much stuff there. If he keeps stuffing in stuff, he's going to be like the steak puff marshmallow, man. I mean, he can only put on so much weight. Like, this isn't like Vic Beasley. This isn't like Vic Beasley who was played at like 225 and then took the Super Soldier Serum and then became 245 for the combine. This and the then guy, people still want him to gain, and it's like the nutty yeah. professor at that point. But, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, with Kendiche, he's already – I mean, he could put on a little bit more, but he's already pretty stacked. Boy, he can get the 280, you know. If he got the 280, people would say he's fat, he's out of shape. You could, I could see the headline now. Robert Kendiche shows up to combine overweight and, you know, questions about work ethic. Fairly. So he shows up overweight at 280, and he's a defensive tackle. Has that ever, ever been? <laughs> has that ever happened? There's one that's 280. They like to throw around when they have guys that that have that little pudge. They're doughy. Not the word doughy. Yeah, doughy. Yeah. <laughs> all all, all I'm gonna say is, pull up the Ole Miss LSU tape. There is one where some DC tackles for and it runs down the field and tackles for net. If Kim Dietschy is three is three hundred five pounds, Fournette's rolling two eighty five. <laughs> they are close to the same size. 
I would, I would, you know, like I said, I, I agree. He's probably not as big as you know I thought, but I think, I think this guy's gonna show up and be whatever he needs to be to get picked. He, he's not gonna walk in there in the building at two sixty, because then there he isn't might. a for him. There's not an NFL position for him if he is not too short. Too there is. They'll change the narrative like what they did with Randy Gregory. He doesn't have to. <laughs> I'm just saying, he can play linebacker now. Remember, Bill? Yeah, but you look at Gregory's frame, though, and you knew that if he just added, I mean, they do it in basketball all the time. You know, the yeah, you guys on the like These aren't. I know. No, I'm speaking from a weight perspective. From a weight perspective, not from a play perspective or a tape perspective. But they look at you, they see you and in that way. And he couldn't even gain weight smoking weed. He's a Snoop Dog of edge rushers. Like he's not going to put on the weight. Oh, you'll hey. you'll love this. I'm telling you, the NFL draft is a six month job interview. Okay, the stress is serious. Okay, Randy Gregory, as soon as he was drafted, he probably put on like ten pounds in two weeks. You know, just just from being over all the drama. Tell me, <laughs> just just from being over the drama, he probably just gained hell of weight. But you just watch, man. You just, you just watch. But as far as Kandichi goes, I, I don't, you know, I'm just saying there's not an NFL position for him if he's not 280. Um, if they change the narrative, I'd be very interested in seeing what it would be because he's not a player. He's not a not a nose guy, not a Will Sutton type where you could kind of take put weight on him and try him here at five. You know, it's just, no, no. And, and even Will Sutton, by the way, is awful at 300 pounds. He needs to be back down to about 290. Um. Yeah, Kandice is. He's got to be of of weight. Well, Steve, you're not going to be happy. They gave him Jalen Smith at number eight to the Titans. Well, you know, I mean, that's I not the that worst thing that could happen. Probably you're the weak side linebacker, so. Well, it says because and, well, and Jim actually tells me he thinks that Jalen Smith can play safe. <laughs> Because, Smart enough, and you know, you know he would be an outstanding tackling safety. So they gave uh, the Raiders Vernon Hargrave at number twelve. Oh, oh, well, James, there you go. <laughs> Sometimes you can get a corner that can turn. What will you do with it? <laughs> go nuts. <laughs> They gave Ronnie Stanley to the Chiefs. No, that's great for them. By the way, I mean, guys, I mean, you know, I've seen more of Stanley. Does he bend, you know, as well as – I mean, he didn't – I mean, he doesn't bend as well as I think he did is more my thing. I mean, he still got him where he's at, but I'm very surprised. You know, and, and now if Jim can tag off this. I think Ronnie Stanley's a very good pass blocker. He's not exactly a killer in the run game. He's happy to get his body between himself and the running back, between the defensive player and the running back. Yeah, trying to kill somebody else. They gave Josh Dawson to the Vikings. Great. Yeah, uh, let me check out something real quick. Uh, Bill. Mr. Bill Carroll. Oh, God. 
Did you snore? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, Somebody no, snore? No. Oh, no. Yeah. Bill. Um, Bill. Well, he's, he's Bill. out. He, he's long gone. <laughs> he's long gone. Is that oh, <laughs> This is real hype, guys. Real <laughs> oh, are you there, Bill? Up, 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 Bill. Bill. Yeah, there's a. There's a few positions that leap to mind that I'm convinced that for whatever reason, there's not a strong grasp of how to recognize who's going to to do well. And, And I wonder, like I said, some of it's prioritization. Some of it's, you know, you don't play these quote unquote impact positions. You know, but to me, like I said, safety is an enormously important position. Like I said, it's one that can I mean, the the Broncos played would play in the Super Bowl against San Francisco if in one of the first things they teach you about playing free safety is you gotta be deeper than the deepest. You know, I learned that before I was in junior high school. And just to see the kinds of things that happen, not just about making a great play or making a you know an extraordinary play, but just not blowing your assignment. That's what it's gotten to now. I just see so many struggle city situations. Um, Jim, in your work, is there another position where you've seen, for whatever reason, they just don't seem to identify the proper guys. I know you talk about Greg and Van as well on the safety camp, but who are some of the guys that, or who, not the guys specifically, but who are the, what are some of the other positions we've noticed as a tendency to just overlook talent and grab, you know, guys who maybe aren't quite as talented? Well, I mean, you just talked about pursuit linebackers. Uh, I think, you know, in all the work that I do, the highest the like the highest success rate correlation uh, for any position in terms of quality was at the pursuit linebacker at the pursuit linebacker position because you know 100% of all the multiple all pro pursuit linebackers you know the Ray Lewis Erlacher Willis Briggs uh, Navarro Bowman Keith Bullock all these guys were in the in the top 15 percentile of solo tackles uh, solo tackles in college and the NFL a lot of times go after like with Bernadette McKinney, right? McKinney was a guy that looked like Brian Urlacher, didn't test like Brian Urlacher, but he looked like him. And NFL teams got super excited about him and didn't produce anywhere near a Brian Urlacher level of a solo tackle uh, percentage. Uh, like elite, elite, pursuit, elite pursuit linebackers are – in the sort of 14 and above percent range in solo tackles uh, for a season. And McKinney was hovering in about 9%, and it steadily decreased 
year after year he was on Mississippi State. So I, I just think the NFL a lot of times has issues. One, they devalue the linebacker position, and two, they don't really know how to find the great ones. Like they undervalued Levante David. Levante David was in an elite group, was in that group with Willis and Erlacher and, and uh, Luke Keekley. He was with those guys. But because he was too short or because he didn't test exactly how they wanted him to test or he was too small, the NFL kind of said, no, you're a day two, you know, linebacker. And he ended up being one of the better ones. Probably should have been drafted a lot higher than what he was. So I think I think the NFL, a lot of times, uh, they have an idea in their head of what the prototypical yep. player yep. is. And a lot of times, they really don't. They just have a bias towards the type of player. Yeah, they end up trying to fit like a square peg into a round hole, you know, and it's not, you know, exactly the best fit. And, you know, like I said about McKinney, I mean, you, I mean, people looked at the size and they got excited. And I was curious because once I saw people, you know, mocking him to the Bears, I was like, well, let's get to know this guy. And then I was like, ooh, let's, let's not. You know, you, you essentially had a 6'5"-ish, 6'4"-ish, 230-pound finesse linebacker who wasn't really that quick. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, it was an experience. <laughs> uh, but he, I'm glad he didn't go in the first round. Like, people were saying top ten pick, and I uh, just – I never saw it. Never saw it. He likes to run around blocks at 6'5", 240. Oh, I don't like contact. I'm just going to run around this blocker, <laughs> you know. And it looks something on tape. Yeah, Leonard Floyd does that at 6'5", uh, 215. Yeah, see, you know, it's, it's wild, man. It's wild. Well, two twenty, give him five extra pounds. Yeah. It makes sense because McKinney was actually a former quarterback, you know. So it's contact really, you know, might not have been his thing, you know. <laughs> so. so I know you mentioned. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll check with you, Kent. Jim talked yeah. about looking at age, and he didn't have it super high, but he did mention that something he looked at. If you look at age metrics, are there particular positions where it would make sense to be more concerned than others? If indeed it turns out that there's, like we talk about, some sort of correlation. Yeah, I mean, your skill position players, you, you want to have your younger guys if you can. Um, there's there's not so much a correlation with younger guys as in ha- being, having success as there is older guys not having success, um, and that that's for uh, wide receiver, quarterback. Uh, I haven't really seen much at tight end, um, and then ob- the obvious one, of course, is running back. You, you want a young running back if you can get one. The youngest younger legs you can get, the better you are. But uh, I know there's a pretty significant correlation, or at least at least uh, uh, the numbers tend to line up with age at receiver. Um, you know, look at look at uh, Matthew Stafford for a good example of how, how they value the age for quarterbacks. Though Matthew Stafford still isn't 28 years old yet. He's been in the league for seven years. He's only 27. There's there's people like Colin Kaepernick who's hitting free agency, and Stafford is still younger than him, even though he you know came into the league in 2009. You know, the the age thing, it's more than just can they be successful. It's how long you're going to be able to coach that person, how long you're going to be able to build them up. 
Um, and your your positions that you can't really jump into tend to be the ones that that, that is more valuable. Um, defensive end is one that I don't think has really had much of an impact on age. Same thing with linebacker. I don't think there's really much correlation there, good or bad, for age. Um, but your your skill positions, both offensive and defensive, tend to have that, that correlation. Uh, Bill, are you there? Yes, yes I am. You're not sleeping this time, are you? No. The the fact is that if you don't invest, I mean, you don't have to have Luke Keekley necessarily or Patrick Willis, but if you don't invest in some of these positions that people have decided that don't matter or don't matter as much. I just I just see so many busts that take place on defense. And a huge number of those can be chalked up, like I said, to weakness in the secondary, particularly at the safety spot. And then obviously no offense to Sean Robinson or a bunch of other fine players. But if you snap him up thinking you've got this usually productive interior player, you know, but you you go after someone like this and some of the other people that you could, you know, you could go for. It's just, uh, if you are able to build really good production and good players, good play also, from your safety and your Mike linebacker. To me, you're, you know, you're halfway home. You know, you're halfway home there. But if you don't have those guys, you know, and once again, I see teams that don't have them because they passed on, you know, they passed on or just drafted badly. I don't know. I just get perplexed at times by uh, how some standards are set regarding if a guy is good or not, and if, you know, what position and all that good stuff. You know, I'd like to see something more more fair and even-handed way of judging some of these guys. Uh, well, Kent, are you still with Is Kent still with us? Yeah, I'm still with you. Oh, wow. Great. Kent, you're you're going to be a, you're going to be, uh, you're going to get invited again, just so you know. <laughs> you're, you're great. Uh, you've had a chance to look at the Lions, and the Lions um, obviously have had in the past several years, uh, you know, drafts that range from the sublime to the ridiculous, as they say. Yep. What do you think? What do you think? Because some some teams are more, you know, as the old thing those height, weight, speed. Some are very much do make a strong use of analytics and metrics. Uh, some are relationship drafters. Hey, if the coach from School X, who is, you know, like I said, someone we like and trust, says, take this kid, we'll take this kid. What do you think the approach is uh, that Detroit tends to use? Yeah, it's it varied a little bit, and it's it, it's been interesting to watch Martin Mayhew, how he's changed the way that he's drafted. 
Uh, he went very talent-heavy early on in his career as, as a drafter. He picked up Matthew Stafford, who was obviously you – know, he was considered one of the top players. There was some contention about who the top number one overall player was, but he was definitely the number one quarterback in that class. Uh, he took Brandon Pettigrew, who was supposed to be the next Jason Witten. Uh, he took the best <laughs> safety in that draft it's class. Draft. Really yeah, I know, right? <laughs> he started out there. And he's not even playing right now. He – yeah, he's been inactive. He was, he was phased out of the offense for the equally disappointing Eric Ebron. So he, he, was, um, he was phased out last year. He's been he's been a blocker and hurt this year. Um, and they got rid of Joseph Fourier, which was probably a better player at the time than Pettigrew. Oh, easily as a receiver, yeah. But then Fourier is gone due to some dog-related shenanigans. Um, <laughs> that was last year. He had that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it, as his, as the Martin Mayhew's career went on, he he tried to do a lot of swinging for the fences. His his second draft was all about seeing how much he could do with as little as he could, uh, and then the following draft, same thing. You know, he had Sue and and Best in his second draft, and obviously Sue is a great player and it was a good pick, um, even though he's not around anymore. Uh, Best was. A, a huge misstep in misevaluating the risk involved. And that, that right there is the biggest trend of Mayhew's tenure as general manager is, is not evaluating risk well. Um, well, also, when Nick Fairley. I mean, those drafts all came at the time where the, uh, you know, the rookie salary was at a certain price, and now you can only get so much and basically screwed up the cap situation. Right, yes. And the, the cap situation was already bad when Mayhew and Luan took mm-hmm. over, and it was going to get worse. And they all knew it was going to get worse because when, when Mayhew and Luan took over in 2009, you know, they didn't have any huge contracts, but they did have the number one overall pick, and they had the Calvin Johnson contract coming up because he was picked number two overall. And then they knew they weren't going to be good enough to compete in 2009, and they ended up getting another high pick and ensued. So they had these well, three they, contracts that they had to try to navigate through, and then the rookie wage scale kicked in. But it was too late for the Lions. We we were already sitting on this huge, and we we often refer to it lovingly as cap getting when it actually hit, which was when the uh, the big jumps took place for Stafford and, and Calvin's contract. Um, well, and they extended them way too long, and that builds up the cap. Right, and the the one the one move uh, extending Calvin was was a bad job by Luan in just in just not not uh, assessing the market correctly. Um, but from a talent perspective, the way the Lions approached things after Nick Fairley in the 2011 draft, uh, they had a ton of problems in 2012 with legal issues with Michael Ashur, Nick Fairley, Aaron Barry. They had a lot of issues with Titus uh, Young. Titus Young. Yeah, who got who got his brain destroyed and at some point? Um, yeah. Well, he, he stopped another. He stopped taking his meds. I mean, yeah. that's what I was told. He just stopped taking his Still meds. Still in prison. He there's there's a lot of things that were wrong with Titus Young. Um, I, I actually use him as the golden standard. If, if I ever hear his name mentioned in comparison for interviews, uh, uh, going back to Cordero Patterson that we talked about earlier, that's one of the reasons I I completely wrote off Cordero Patterson during the draft was that uh, a buddy of mine had interviewed him, and he said that he was the worst interview he had had since t- he interviewed Titus Young. 
and the the attitude and just the way that he approached the game and the way that he approached life in general because it, was, it wasn't like a, a just a football interview. But he said just the the way that he carried himself was was almost as bad as Titus Young, and I was like, that's really bad. <laughs> it's like that's that's almost as bad as you can get. Um, but once once that happened in 2012, uh, Martin Mayhew switched up his game a bit. He hired Brian Sanders in 2013, and they had their best draft. And in in comparison, it's one of the best drafts um, over the past probably half decade or so. In that was a big risk. That was a huge risk for Ziggy on so, so. Yeah, it was a massive risk. Hey, let's take this guy who started five games. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it, it, it was as much of a risk as that was. It was still a fantastic draft, and it worked out really, really well. And and making it even more amazing is that draft was really bad. I mean, that 2013 draft was not a good draft. Right. Um, so they navigated through that. But then 2014, um, they took Eric Ebron. And I like the Eric Ebron pick, but like yeah, I didn't like him in the first out. round. See, I did. But even then, even, even acknowledging that I liked Eric Ebron and that I liked the pick – that is a historic draft for receivers. And you knew that going into it, that it was going to be a historic draft for receivers. And that's the pick you go with, with what you needed. And that's odd that they did that. Um, I'm not as down on the Aaron Donald pick as most people are. I know and that, that's more of a hindsight thing because the Lions had every intention to re-sign Sue and they believed it was going to happen, uh, which was another reason that Martin Mayhew was no longer around and Luan is also gone. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I don't think they thought they'd lose both fairly and fair. Right. They believed they were getting at least one of those back. And losing fairly had nothing to do with uh, the Lions. That had to do with fairly. They they had um, they had conditions set for conditioning with fairly, and he failed to meet them. He, they, they had put an offer on the table for him, and when he came back to uh, reassess their offer, he had lost like 20 pounds. And he was at, he was almost 270 when when he came back to the table. So they were like, uh, that's the opposite of what your original problem was. <laughs> uh, wow. And then there was the Ryan Broyles pick. Yeah, and Ryan Broyles was it, it was it was a need that they needed, but that goes back to assessing that risk. Mayhew had no idea how to assess risk. He didn't know how to look at a pick and say, yes, that's the correct pick. The risk is I mean, he was, he's still very raw as a player, and they just don't know how to develop anybody. Yeah, well, he had, he had one skill, and they didn't, they didn't have an offense that used that skill. And th- that, that goes back to the difference between, uh, between Mayhew and his coaches, which is they never had the same vision. Uh, Martin Mayhew was drafting for an entirely different team than his coaches needed. <laughs> yep. Um, and that carried on. When, when he hired Jim Caldwell, I was like, okay, this is a coach that has worked with his general manager before. This should be okay. And they got Lombardi, and that was the mistake, was getting Joe Lombardi. Joe Lombardi is terrible. And his, his, his offensive scheme required zone blocking, and the Lions have been drafting man-type blockers. They drafted Riley Reef. They drafted Larry Warford. They had all these guys that were picked up who who aren't well in, they don't work well in space. Their job is moving in straight lines. Like yeah, and you don't, it's bad enough when you make a pick that doesn't fit and it doesn't work out. You know, that, that happens. But when you make repeated picks for one goal and your coaches are going in an entirely different direction and no one adjusts, the coaches don't adjust, the players don't pick anything up, the general manager doesn't change his direction, 
you know, it, it's just a it's a huge disaster because we'll never know you know how good you know uh, uh, Travis Swanson who plays center. You know, there was a lot of promise for Travis Swanson. They picked him up in the third round last year, but not in his own blocking scheme. That's just stupid. That's the worst thing you could do with him is say, hey, we're going to move you laterally. We're going to have you going side to side. It's like, did you watch any tape of him when he was in college? There's a lot of things he did well. That is not one of those things that he did well. Um, they drafted Kyle Van Noy, and they've done nothing with him. They they don't even do anything with Kyle Van Noy. They, they had Tahir Whitehead finally take off last year. He's one of the top inside linebackers in the NFL last year, and then they put him on the back. I mean, it's, it's been... That was uh, odd. Yeah, What's up was, with their corner selecting, though? They draft um, these corners that don't even fit their schemes. I mean, they got they went and got Quandre Diggs in like the sixth, and he's like their nickel, I think. So that that, that explains it. You know, that's that's where they're at. Now they need to draft somebody high at least. Rashawn Mathis is way too yeah, they, they, they've needed it for years, and they trust. Uh, I guess they just trusted Terrell Austin and that pass rush to get there, and then they lost half of their front yep. line, and, uh, and that's really, yeah. they're not and getting like, there. Some, well, they're not a. And my opinion, like was way overrated. Right. But, like, Darius Slay has actually been playing really well. It's just you can't tell. Say, because Darius Slay is a very good corner. Yeah, but you can't tell because Rasheen Mathis is so bad, and, and, you know, his age caught up to him quickly. And the guy behind him is James Ahedabo, who also had age catch up to him all at once. And, you know, Glover Quinn is a good good safety, but he's... he's the guy back there. He's got to cover up for a bad safety on the other side and a bad corner. And then wait, the whoa, whoa. weren't they considered the best tandem last year? They were. Uh, and Rasheen Mathis was good last year. And both both Ahedabo and uh, Quinn were good last year. However, the end of the year last year, James Ahedabo Ahedabo got benched twice in the last four games. And they they were getting ready to take him off of the starting position, and he was actually fighting for his job in training camp. Or Did they give a reward him with the big contract, though? No, he tried to he 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 uh, held out. He was trying to hold out while Cam Chancellor was over in Seattle trying to hold out. James Ahedabo was trying to to make himself to put some parallels there. It didn't work. He didn't get a new contract. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then he hasn't been playing well, and and that that brings us to the other problem in Mayhew's tenure, which is when he when he finds a backup that he likes, he keeps that backup, whether they're good or not. He keeps the backups. Uh, the backups at safety are Don Carey and uh, Issa Abdul Kadus, neither of which are good. Um, our backups at corner, he's drafted plenty of small cornerbacks, which is Martin Mayhew did because he was a small cornerback. I was going to say, <laughs> and he he drafted. Uh, he drafted Nevin Lawson, who's a small cornerback. Uh, he drafted Bill Bentley before that, who Bill Bentley was actually not that bad and did fit the scheme pretty well, if he couldn't stay healthy. Right. Um, Nevin Lawson, he drafted right after that specifically to be Nichols. Nevin Lawson is going to be starting this week. Awesome. Oh, boy. There's sarcasm there. There's sarcasm there. Uh, he, yeah, drafted Quandre Diggs. <laughs> he drafted Quandre yeah. Diggs. Um, so he has, he has a plethora of nickel cornerbacks. And <laughs> you, can you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, relationship drafting, and that brings me to the successor for Rasheen Mathis, which is Alex Carter. Um, 
Nothing against Alex Carter as a person. I'm sure he's a great guy, but he was a terrible draft pick for the Lions. Uh, and they didn't draft him because he was a worthwhile third-round pick. He doesn't fit the scheme. Uh, he doesn't fit the scheme even if they converted him to safety, which was what people, some people had wanted Cam to Sutton. do. Cam Sutton. Cam Sutton. He'll fix their problems. Yep. Um, but he does know Martin Mayhew, and he knows Jim Caldwell, and he's uh, friends with Rasheen Mathis. His family knows oh. Rasheen Mathis. He calls Didn't him Martin Mayhew get fired? What's that? Didn't Martin Mayhew get fired? Yes, he got fired. Yeah. So that brings me, like I said, that brings me back to Alex Carter. <laughs> when you have a guy that's brought in because of because of relationships, and then everybody in that relationship was built on is gone, then it's a wasted pick. And I hate to call somebody who hasn't even stepped on the field yet a wasted pick, but that's where this is headed for Alex Carter. He has a huge, huge obstacle to climb over, which isn't just getting up to NFL speed. It's getting up to NFL speed after missing it at least eight games. Um, into a defense that you don't really fit and don't really have the skill set for on a team that no longer has anyone present who wanted you on the team. Now, that's extremely <laughs> tough to try to overcome. Um, and they're going to have to try to. You know, I, I don't think based on the Lions scheme that I would have drafted Carter higher than where we drafted Diggs. And again, that's not a, it's not a dig on Carter per se, because if, if we are in a different defense, that might have been the perfect spot for him. But he doesn't fit the Lions defense. He, he doesn't fit Terrell Austin's scheme. So it's going to be interesting to see how they move forward with Mayhew, uh, without Mayhew. But one thing the Lions need to have is a general manager and a coach that are on the same page. Because if we had drafted four offensive starters for their offensive line, and they all just sucked, then okay, well, you need, you need a new talent evaluator. you got to go. But the hardest thing about the Lions right now is it's really hard to find out who actually sucks and who just has been a product of how awful the scheme has been. They need to you bring know, Mark Dominic back into the business. <laughs> right. Well, like Larry Warren. Nobody can fix your of, cap and leave you in good, you know, position. That's, that's one of the, the good things that we got from Luan is even though he's gone, he's leaving, and the cap is not a disaster because they, the Lions have like $30 million in cap space next year, and they have no contract looming. I know people are talking about uh, Calvin Johnson's contract for the fourth year in a row. Um, we're, always, we're always trading Calvin Johnson. I don't know if you guys pay much attention to it, but it's, it's become a yearly thing. We always... talk, talk about the corner position. Is somebody like a Lehan Hall – He's entering free agency. Would that help them at all out? For a little while. They, they're going to need Maybe not as a number one. Play. Maybe no. not as number one. But probably as a number two, but maybe move Slay, try him at number one, maybe. Yeah. I don't know how good he'd be at. Yeah, and it, it depends on what we're going to end up with a defensive scheme and whether we're going to stick with the number one, number two, or left cornerback, right cornerback, however they're going to do it. Um, but Leon Hall would be a good option to to, to bridge because they're going to have to draft somebody. They need somebody that's going to have to be an outside corner. Kim Sutton would be great for that uh, for that, that defense, but we don't know what scheme they're going to be using. Right, and that's what makes it tough too. Is we don't know who the general manager is going to be. We don't know uh, who the if quarterback is going to be next year. We don't know any of this stuff. The only thing we know is that Martin Mayhew's gone, and his vision is gone, and whoever's coming in is going to want to do something different. They're not going to want to pick up where he left off. There's going to be a lot of players that were probably good 
there's going to be a lot of good players gone next year. Yep. Like I, like I said, Mark Dominic probably might be a better bet than most guys out there right now. It could be. I mean, there's there's a lot of people lined up. And, and what's, what's interesting about the Lions is the last time the Lions rebuilt uh, in 2009, uh, they had this oh. talentless... They had this talentless wasteland of a roster. Uh, what more the Jacks than, used to be. Yeah. Uh, more than 60% of the Lions roster from 2008 were off, out of the league by the end of 2009, just over oh. a year later. Um, it, it, was, wow. it was a disaster. Oh. And then on top of that, they had, the first, they had the first overall pick in what was a decent draft, but not a great draft. And even though Stafford is, was considered such a hot topic at the time, even then people understood that is a flawed prospect. That's a prospect that's very high risk, high reward. Um, nobody wanted to come to Detroit. Uh, they, they had to overpay the hell out of people to come to Detroit. Um, they had a bad cap situation, and it was going to get worse. And they knew and that. And they overpaid so, for Kyle Vandenbosch. Right? Yes. They had to overpay Kyle Vandenbosch, Nate Burleson, uh, Julian Peterson, when they first brought him in, was getting paid a butt-ton of money. I mean, the, the, big, the big free agency uh, pickups that the Lions got, they weren't really free agents, we traded for them, um, that they tried to sell everybody on in 2009 was, was uh, Anthony Henry uh, and Julian Peterson. And... This 2016 squad that we're coming into has a lot more talent on it. Uh, the cap, we have $30 million in cap and no huge contracts that are going to be taking up big chunks of the cap after that. Um, obviously, they have Calvin and Stafford, but we're, it, it's, I think, 15th or 16th in the league for the top two contracts after that. So it's not a bad situation to be in cap-wise. We have 10 draft oh. picks in 2016. Uh, there's a lot more to make people want to come to Detroit than we had in 2009. Hmm. Right, and hopefully so, they can they can recover with all those pass rushers gone. That's this, you know this is it's a pretty deep class yes. compared to last years. Yeah, and the hope is that they they are able to do that both. We're going to have to go to free agency and the draft for pass rush and offensive line. That's it's going to have to happen. Um, Riley Reeve needs to be switched to left tackle. Lake and Tomlinson should not be. On the left side, they should keep them on the right. And right now, they need to find a new left guard and a new left tackle. Yeah, they got to do something. Center's, on the line. center's the biggest right spot. Now. Well, center's center is one of the worst spots right now because of how badly fit Travis Swanson is in that spot. Uh, there's no reason to put Travis Swanson in a zone blocking scheme. Um, I remember one play against uh, Minnesota where they had tried to pull. They had Eric Kendricks sitting on the outside. It was one of Eric Kendricks' sacks. He was sitting on the outside. It was an obvious rush. And they tried to swing Travis Swanson from the snap at center all the way across the offensive line to try and pick up Kendricks, rushing free off the edge. And a great center would have trouble doing that. Uh, A center that is not fit for the scheme, that can't move laterally very well, is never going to be able to make that block. And sure enough, he didn't make the block, and it was a huge sack. Um, if they go back to a man scheme, I don't think center is going to be a problem. I think if they went back to a regular man blocking scheme, that Travis Swanson would be fine. Yeah. But yeah, you put him in. If they if they if they pick up somebody that wants to try zone blocking, I'm going to pull out what little bit of hair I have and <laughs> retire to an island somewhere. Um, not like a good island, like in Manhattan or something. 
Um, but it, 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 it just doesn't make any sense. And that's what that's what we've been saddled with as Lions fans for a long time, stuff that doesn't make any damn sense. Uh, he's been beaten and he's been battered, as all mm-hmm. Lions fans have. We come off the other side awesome. We just don't know where the hell the other side is. So, so Kent, let's let's open up the, you know, the what if machine and and put you in it. So, if they brought you in and said, you know, we could really use your help, what would be your first, you know, day one thing to do in terms of changing the evaluation process that the Lions use? Um, that's a good question. So. Like I mentioned before, the, there was a lot of, of disconnect between the general manager and the head coach. Mm-hmm. And I think the first thing that I would do would be to sit those two people down, whoever they are, with their coordinators and develop a plan and put together an idea of this is what we want to do with this team. This is who we want to be. This is the identity we want to have. Um, when, back when Jim Schwartz was the head coach, there was a lot of issues with Jim Schwartz as a head coach. But one of the things that he did have with our team was an identity. You knew who the Lions' defense was because they were mean. They were assholes. They were gonna. They were gonna hit you or something. <laughs> they were pricks. They were. They were. And there was a lot of problems with that. We were the most penalized team in the universe. Um, and you know, there were a lot of problems. Suspended, the yeah. probably <laughs> more suspended team. Right. Most suspended. Most fined. Um, I think that one year we actually hit that cap where the team gets fined because there's so many fines for your team, your team players. Um, and then you have to do the stomp. <laughs> right. But we had an identity. The, the team had an identity. We were a very sure. pass-heavy team. We were going to win through the air, and we were going to use the run, the pass to set up the run, and they were going to punch you in the mouth in the defense. Um, they added more talent to the team. Yeah. They added more talent to the team, but they really lost that identity when they picked up Jim Caldwell. Uh, Terrell Austin is a really good defensive coach. I know it's hard to tell this year because the defense is so bad. He's been dealing with a bajillion injuries and weird mystery benchings and things like that. But uh, Terrell Austin, as good of a coach as he is, he didn't really have a chance to build an identity with that defense. Um, They weren't the whole punch-you-in-your-mouth type team. They were not really the bend, the, the bend don't break type of team. They they were very good against the run, but that's a, like a product of having an identity. That's not having an identity. They, they didn't really have something to define them as a defense as a team. And the offense had nothing. Other than being bad, the offense had no kind of identity. And now we could have been Johnson. Right. And even then, it was nobody, we weren't throwing to Calvin enough. We were, well, because he was hurt. Right. He was hurt. And when he right. was, when he wasn't, we weren't throwing to him enough. And then we were just throwing to Tate. It was basically, hey, Tate, save us from this really bad, no good, awful day. And, and Tate it worked. Was, yes, it did. It, it did. It was great when it did work. But that's not, that's not building your team up. That's getting lucky in all the right places. Um, you know, we had the Atlanta game, which was saved by, you know, a big Golden Tate catch, and the New Orleans game, which was also saved by a big New Orleans catch and an interception in uh, at the end zone at the perfect time. But there were a lot of moments in the 2014 season that could have made it a lot worse. And there were a whole bunch of moments in the 2015 season that could have made it a little bit more tolerable, but only one or two that could have made it a better season. 
same question for you, Jim Coburn. They brought you in in Oakland and said, man, you know, we could really use some help here. We're trying to get more production, particularly from the latter rounds of our draft. What would be the first thing you would do to change the evaluation process that they used in Oakland? Well, I would say stop drafting uh, Make-A-Wish Foundation candidates. <laughs> um, you may not know this, but the Raiders are a team that likes storylines. Guy has a torn vena cava and survives, loses lots of weight, looks in the mirror and goes, I'm going to get back on that horse. Dramatic music swells in the background. Right? DJ Hayden's coming back. Well, I mean, that's what we do. We like to draft. We draft. This last draft, we drafted. Near a ball, had a near death experience, uh, had a brain tissue sort of injury, which he could still die from, by the way. Uh, I don't know why he's still playing. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, the guard. Mario Edwards. Well, uh. I know. Well, they wanted to say he, he was hungry now. <laughs> I think wow. they, I, I think, I think they're mistaking hunger for hunger. Like, he, he's hungry. He's not hungry for dominance. He's just hungry. Gives the man something to eat. Because <laughs> He, he, this is a guy that was quoted as saying, "Well, he was—he never said this." He's like, "Oh, that's the thing." Is like it was a deal. Like I was saying, he's pissed off about he. You know, he fell to the second round. He's pissed off about it, and, he, and he's he's upset about it. I'm like, "You're Murray Evers Jr. You should be elated he got drafted in the second round." And <laughs> what planet do you think that you deserve to be drafted any higher than the second round? Like. But, but anyway, so we had that for, and of course, Millick Watson is—he's British. He's from Britain, and he's a basketball player, eh? Right? You know, uh, <laughs> like we draft really good stories, or or, or the or the other Feliciana, right? Who had a club foot, and his little mother rubbed that foot every day until it was straight again. Like, <laughs> this is what we draft. Okay. This is what we Not, you're, you're changing my evaluation process now. Now I want to figure out who the Raiders are drafting. <laughs> exactly. 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 They have to have a great story. Now we've gotten really good. I mean, the twenty third, the twenty fourteen draft, probably the best draft we've had in a long time. I mean, you mm-hmm. end up with the last getting draft. What? What about you last year's draft? Well. We got Amari Cooper and no, no, no. The year before, I'm talking about with Carr and Matt. Yeah, he built you just said, again. He said it was their best. He said that was their best draft in years. He oh, I thought he was that. saying yeah. the 2015 was. No, he oh, said 2014 draft. 2014. You know the draft of all the wide receivers that were taken. Uh, you know, Khalil Mack, great defensive player. Nice. Nice. He does. Get Derek Carr, who I'm even surprised has turned out so well this year. I didn't think he was going to be this good this year, but he is. Uh, you know, but Gabe Jackson, he's probably our best offensive lineman, period, at least to me. I mean, he's a powerful, angry guy. We got him in the third round. 
Uh, we got a really, really good depth fix, and we got our starting cornerback in, like, the sixth round, guys. Like, Travis Carey is our best cornerback, and he's legit a good cornerback. He's not bad. He's good. And we got him sixth round. We also got another, I think, Shelby, I think. Yeah. Derek Shelby, who's uh, also good. I don't know why we don't give him more opportunities, but whatever. Um, this is a lot better than where we were. Because you have to remember, the Raiders – when Reggie McKenzie took over the team, he did not have a first-round pick. He didn't have a second-round pick. He technically or, had a third-round pick, but it was a conditional third-round pick. So it's, is it really a third-round pick if you think about it that way? It's at the end of the third round. Well, all of those guys are gone pretty much. Well, technically you had a first-round pick that year in Carson Palmer. You know, right. you've got a starting quarterback for two years. Uh-huh. Right. Where is he now? Uh, Lighting it up in Arizona. Yeah, for for now. But um, basically, we gave up way too much for Carson Palmer, especially considering how everything turned out. He was um, out of retirement. We had huge cap problems because we paid players tons of money. I mean, Richard Sherman got – Richard Seymour, excuse me, got paid, guys. He got paid. <laughs> big money, and then he kind of regressed because he got old, you know. He's older. He's not the same guy. But he still got paid tons of money. I think we gave Tommy Kelly a ton of money, too. We gave money to everybody, really, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, Tommy I think we Kelly paid Tommy Kelly. Dessert. Well, he wasn't producing like that until after he got paid, so, you know. Um, he wasn't having, uh, in his words, fried chicken performances until after he got paid, so... But um, <laughs> I think with the Raiders, this is really weird because as a evaluator of the team this year, this team is not supposed to be this good this year. Uh, Derek Carr is not supposed to be this good. Amari Cooper is a really good wide receiver, but I didn't think he was going to have this much impact this year. I did. As he had. Really? Yeah, and everybody was going to be white was better. The Raiders figured out this concept that the Lions still don't understand, which is if you have a good receiver, you, what you do is you take your quarterback and you have him throw the ball to your good receivers. I know it's mind blowing. Well, keep in mind. Well, keep in mind. Keep in mind this. I I love that when the Mark Cooper pick came in. I was I was very happy about it because we've never had a wide receiver this good. In a while. Well, since Tim Brown. Well, well, maybe even since Randy Moss, but he was not good for the Raiders. Well, Randy Moss was Randy Moss. I mean, he he he. We weren't, we weren't winning. You know, we weren't winning, and then he got kind of fed up and was like, "I don't want to be here anymore." So, uh, <laughs> and that was that was it. But I mean, we haven't had a really good wide receiver in a long time. I mean, our wide receivers were Andre Holmes. Rod Streeter. I mean, we had Kimbrell Tompkins as a starter coming in this year. You know, so like we got better there. Uh, our offensive line is still questionable. Um, Watson, Middle League Watson can't stay healthy to save himself. Austin Howard is iffy. Austin Howard. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, Bill. Uh, what what was the question you were asking about the Raiders? Oh, <laughs> I was saying 
you were talking about what you would stop doing, which was, you know, the sort of Rudy, you know, inspirational. The Make a Wish Foundation. Right, Make a Wish Foundation, what you call it. You move away from that. So, what would you do on day one? I find a boring candidate. That's your first question, right? I like this sort of heart approach. Yes, yes, the Raiders have a lot of heart. I'll give you that. Because, like, that's how he approaches it. I want players who love football. The problem is, is that he's drafting players who love football but aren't necessarily the best players. Mm-hmm. And that's, Isn't Mario Edwards like football? I don't think so. Mario Edwards likes football? No. I mean, I'm sure he likes football. I don't think he loves football, though. Like, I, I, you know, I, I don't know, Mario Edwards Jr., I just know that he was not exactly my first choice for a second-round pick uh, that place. Especially a guy that tested more like Nick Collins than, than you know, whatever he was compared to. I don't know what he was compared to. But, um, I mean, that, that's the only thing I would really change. I'm happy with what's happening right now. A lot like the Lions situation last year. Because the Lions, the Lions surprised me. Last year, I had the Lions picking in the top 10 last year and I was proven wrong because obviously they made the playoffs. But I still had a feeling that something was going to give, like something bad was going to happen, I guess. I hate to say it that way. Not everything bad, though. Jeez. It was only one bad play or one bad call that still, you know, but we got that. What's a catch? What's not a catch? And that Golden Tate touchdown a few weeks ago that should have been an interception. Yeah. Sure. But we got we got made up for in that one because he had another one later that should have been a touchdown that wasn't called a touchdown. So at least we made up for that. But no, this this year everything's gone wrong. I, I guess I guess all I would really do is I would just wish that they would draft a little bit better day three, and that's really about it. And that's all I can really ask because. Reggie McKenzie had a really good 2014 draft, but that's really been his only really good draft. I mean, all the other drafts, he had one great player and then a bunch of guys. And don't get me wrong, that's a pretty good haul. I mean, Amari Cooper and a bunch of guys is is a lot better than what other people could say. But if it was Amari Cooper and, say, a Jake Fisher in the second round or Amari (laughs) Cooper... You're just still on that Jake Fisher train. Yeah, it's on the Jake Fisher train. It's a lot better than than what we got in Austin Howard. Well, let's just say I don't think Jake Fisher is going to be playing anytime soon. Well, yeah, because he has Austin Wentworth in front of him, who's also a really good tackle. And also got signed to a a long-term extension. Yeah, but he doesn't like it there, according to... Sources. I don't know, Bill, but uh, what was the other sort of thing, Bill? <laughs> Is he sleeping again? I don't know. Bill? Uh, Bill? Yeah, I'm just trying to think oh. of... <laughs> it sounds like you're snoring back there. No, I'm trying to think of, because Jim's rolled through, obviously he talked about the changes he'd make. So, would you begin to put prototypes in place or I mean what would if you're trying to change the the 
the evaluation drafting mindset, what do you, I mean, some people have, like I said, what I call negotiables and non-negotiables. You know, Parcells didn't want to touch a quarterback that didn't have 30 starts or didn't have at least 58% completion percentage or, you know, certain things that he thought were non-negotiable. If you're changing the evaluation climate and process, what are your, your non-negotiables there? Non-negotiable? I don't know. I mean, McKenzie, when you look at this team, the only thing I can really say is the Raiders are like the Packers of the West Coast. Because if you look at all of our players that we've drafted, they're a lot like Packer players. I mean, we draft tackles that are probably better suited at guard, but we just put them there. Derek Carr is kind of like a poor man's Aaron Rodgers in a way. Um, and especially now, the way he's playing, he's kind of a poor man's Aaron Rodgers. Uh, running back isn't exactly a priority, but they tend to try to find him later. Uh, defense, more emphasis on DBs over other sort of stuff. So I, I don't really know 100% what's changed. As much as I just wish that they were better at evaluating talent in certain instances. Because they've been more hit and miss. At least they've had some hits. That's the only thing I could say. They've had some hits. And some of this is also just because of resources, because they, mm-hmm. they don't have a ton of resources. They can't go out in free agency and buy everybody, because people ultimately have to want to play for the Raiders, and not everybody wants to play for the Raiders. So it's just a matter of you know having limited resources and making the most of it. And uh, I just wish they were just were a little bit better in terms of their talent evaluation overall. Um, I am, I guess I'll, 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 since we have Isaiah here, same question, Isaiah, they, they bring you in, they say, you know, we need somebody to, make some changes in our evaluation and scouting process. What do you do day one, Isaiah? Try to find some fix the defense. I know it's good and all that, but I mean, the relationship between the GM and, you know, the coach is great. Steve Kime and Bruce Arians, it's all good. The only thing I am concerned about is their defensive uh, player evaluation really Marcus Bolden second round. I mean like we're we're making do with Lamar Woodley starting up, you know, left end. I just would like to see them learn how to pick better defensive talent. We have a lot of holes. Really our only pass rusher is Calais Campbell. And you know, he's really the only good guy that we have in that area. I mean, we have a good, really good secondary. Not great, but really, really good. Um, we have great safety play. But it all affects when you got your front seven and all that great. It's good enough that it's in spectacular. I would like to see better evaluation in certain areas. I have no concerns about their offense, only to find a suitable back quarterback. 
Uh, Bill. Uh, yeah, I'm right here. I'm just trying to think. Of, is Steve still with us? Uh, no, Steve had to run. Okay, Steve had to run. Okay, got it. Okay, so I guess we're pretty much done there with what were what you, you do with your Steelers? Well, I think I'd do two things. Uh, I think I would first of all. Uh, put in place some things that we would demand, have to have, have to see uh, from positions. Particularly, like I said, I think there's another team that you can trace their uh, decline as a defense to decline in their safety play. And then they would line. Yeah, well, they've never, not saying that, it's been a, it's been a long time since the, you know, you go back to like Rod Woodson um, to when they had really excellent corner play, but they were able to make up for that by having really excellent safety play. And as I mentioned before, it's easier to cover up spotty safety play with great uh, spotty corner play with great safety play than the other way around, you know? So there I would, and then um, the offensive line, it's no longer, you know, the worst offensive line in football, but it's, it's still, you know, bottom 12 or so, in my opinion. They still have some real issues. Um, they run fairly. I mean, they run uh, block fairly well, but they've got some challenges in pass protection. Uh, their best offensive lineman is constantly injured, and... Uh, they don't have a left tackle. I mean, I don't think a single person on their roster is a legitimate NFL left tackle. So we would spend a lot of time. Not a fan of Kelvin Beecham? (laughs) I am a fan of Kelvin Beecham for what he actually is. What about that Stanford guy they have on their offensive line? Uh. Or uh, Alejandro uh, Villanueva. I love, I love Alejandro Villanueva. I think at some point in his career, he may even go to a Pro Bowl on the right side. Or David DiCastro in the long yeah, line of stud Stanford guards. <sighs> Hall of Fame Stanford guards. <laughs> I don't think Bill is a fan of him. Well, I mean, once again, I'm a fan of him for what he is. I mean, the thing is, like I said, they don't they don't have a left tackle on the roster, a legitimate starting NFL left tackle anywhere on the roster. He's been fine. Your well, definition of fine is different from mine. Yeah, I mean, fine is. If you say somebody's fine, that means that your quarterback is probably going to have a couple ankle injuries a year. Which has happened. Yeah. Yep. And you he's don't want Landry fine. Jones. I know. And you lose games if you have Landry Jones. So if you get better than fine, you win more games. With Landry Jones. No, with Ben Because <laughs> he's not injured because you weren't starting killing and beating would you rather have uh, Dermod Bushride? 
from the Bears? Oh. That's a debate there. Beecham or him? Oh, my. Well, like I said, I would devote <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of time and attention to figuring out uh, what things have been found with, pro- you know, what, what does a great left tackle look like from his football intelligence, you know, physical traits to, I mean, essentially everything all the things that go into making a great left tackle because, you know, there hasn't been one suiting up in Pittsburgh in a very, very long time. And the other thing I said would be fixing the, you know, the defense. And everyone always, nowadays at least, everyone always, you know, says you got to get a corner and corners are important. But to me, if they get, get the safety spots fixed, they can upgrade the safety positions, both of them, they can muddle through with below-average corners. Like I said, you've got the safeties to sort of cover up for them. So those are the things I would do, you, you know, day one. Those are the day one things I would do. You know, the directives would go out regarding, you know, here's a fact sheet on the things that we know about the best left tackle prospects over the past 15 years. And, you know, similar, similar thing with, with, with the, you know, the, trying to find and improve the safety spots. And then after that, you know, offensive defensive line depth because everybody can use line depth. But even then, we're not drafting depth. We're going after guys that we truly believe can start. You know, so that's the other thing I would I would I would be day one is in marching orders going out. You know, here's the things that we not that we don't trust you. We think you have a great football mind. Of, you know, we wouldn't have hired you as a scout if we didn't think that. But here's some guidelines. Here's the like I said, you know, the check checklist, whatever it is. You might will put it. Here's the things we're looking for. And here's the things that that we feel like fit best with what we're building. You know, because we've had some head scratchers. Uh, we certainly found some guys that you know we've had, a, especially lately, had some head real head scratchers. Yep. Um, you, know, you drafted Ryan Shazier, you know, who was ready to go to the Dolphins. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Turquoise doesn't yep. really go well with his uh, complexion, so. <laughs> yeah, that's that's another way to start evaluating prospects is to figure out what kind of uniform will look best on them. Um, Kent, let me ask you, where, uh, I know you, you, you do some very you know, Lion-specific work. Do you ever do any, any non-Lion-specific stuff? Oh, uh, Kent had to do a run, too. So. Oh, all right. All right, you did. Well, excellent. Um, now that we have Isaiah here, because it's always fun to have Isaiah, because what's more? Oh, no, we don't have Isaiah here. Well, it's just the two of us. <laughs> 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 well, there's nothing wrong with that. 
Um, okay, well then I guess we'll wrap it a few minutes, but we'll we'll talk a little bit about the um, some matchups that we'll be watching and stuff for tomorrow, and we'll probably discuss some more detail on the on the uh, morning show tomorrow. Which games have you circled and why, Jim? Games. Mm, interesting. Um, <sighs> trying to pull it up. None, none really come to mind right now. Um, oh, well, for me, it's Baylor, see. Baylor, Oklahoma is the one that I have served. Oh, Miami, North Carolina. Ooh. Oh, yeah, Corn Elder yeah. versus, uh, you know, who, who, somebody. Quinn yeah. Shaw, probably. Yeah. yeah. I'd rather him go up against a better wide receiver, but um, somebody, well, hopefully well, he... Bug Howard, maybe? Uh, Mac yeah, Collins, Bug maybe. Howard. Bug yeah, Howard, Howard uh, Wes Welker. I think if he matches with Wes Welker, that'd be a cool <laughs> uh, matchup uh, for me. I And I gave this North Carolina team a lot of crap because they lost to South Carolina. And they shouldn't have lost that game. Uh, well, they really should not have lost. They should be undefeated. They should be undefeated. They should be undefeated. Uh, and boy, we have but, to mention conversation soon. But I like I like this team. Um, I think the offense is good. Williams is inefficient, but there's so many weapons, it doesn't matter, kind of, sort of. It's just true. I mean, he's so – there's so many weapons that you can't go wrong, you know, <laughs> in terms of where he throws the ball. Uh, and the defense. As much as you're not the biggest uh, Gene Chizik fan, he whipped that defense I'm, with a lot of eh into yeah, good. I am a play. fan of him as a defensive coordinator. Um, and I think that, you know, he's overrated as a head coach, but he's completely correctly rated as a defensive coordinator. Yep. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Miami, like I said, Cornelder. I don't know why aren't people talking about Cornelder. I don't understand. What do I have to do for people to give Cornelder hype? I don't know. Uh, well, maybe maybe Elder, tomorrow will be that day. Tomorrow I, I might be that know. day. It might. It might not. He's done big plays. He made the controversial touchdown run. Yes, at the end of the did. at the end of the Duke game. He's yep. a really good man corner that can make plays all across the field. And you also continually team. give me Trey White and Kendall Fuller and mm. all these other people. Why? Why? Yeah. Just give me Cornelder and it'll all be good. So, yeah. Right. Well, the one, I want to see that. One I'm, yeah, the one I'm circling is is the Big 12 matchup of uh, OU Baylor. I'm a little writing about that probably um, oh, tonight. OU Baylor. But, well, oh yeah, oh you Baylor. Chance, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah, it's a chance to see whose defense, you know, doesn't basically melt under the <laughs> under the pressure and heat of the other team's offense. Um, you know, oh yeah, the, you're going to get to see, you know, some terrific wide receiver play for both teams. Quite frankly, both teams. Corey have, Coleman versus Zach Sanchez. Ooh. <laughs> If that if he's matched up man on man with Corey, that's not a good day at the officer's Zach Sanchez, who 
I understand what people see in him, but like I said, everything I've seen screams, you know, zone to me. But sure, uh, right, and they don't tend to thus far, at least. Baylor has not tended to turn the ball over. Oklahoma's been a little more likely to give the ball to the other team, but we'll see. I mean, you know, that obviously Stidham's, you know, new-ish, though I think, you know, he will have had some reps, and he should be good to go. The running games of both teams will be really interesting to see, too. When mm-hmm. Oklahoma commits to them, that's what one thing that worries me. Oklahoma commits to You mean to the run, non-existent like, running game? Well, it depends. Both teams are capable of running the ball. It just comes down they're to They're capable. They just it. don't do it. Right. I know. They're like Sean so, Payton. They're Sean Payton. They have running backs. They just don't run the football. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Like I said, they both have the capability. <laughs> we'll see. I remember yeah. you, we, we talked about this in West Virginia. Now, they beat West Virginia, but they didn't do it in the fashion you were saying they were going to do it. Yeah, they passed yeah. the ball and featured Baker Mayfield. And yeah. that offense but, is specifically tailored to feature yeah. Baker Mayfield. They later decided to pound the rock with Samaj Piran, and it worked when they did it. Well, like I said, we'll see if they decide to go back to that. Uh, Jim, tell people where they can find and follow your work, sir. Oh, yeah, sure. You can find my work at uh, FanSide at NFL Spin Zone, uh, Draft. Coburn.wordpress.com. I'm probably going to, I've been working on a few. I already have like a running back PowerPoint on there. Now I'm going to probably do some other PowerPoints on offensive linemen or something like that um, because I get challenged on that all the time. And then I got people saying it doesn't matter. And then I go, well, if it doesn't matter, then why don't you do the work? Because, you know, if somebody says that, it's like going up to a scientist and they go, you know, your job doesn't matter. Well, you know, uh, how do you know if you don't do the job? That <laughs> You know, that's all I ask sometimes. If you don't like metrics, right. that's fine. But if you never do metric and you've right. never even tried it and you right. say, mm, then I get a little angry at that. Right. But that's I, re- I, I remember we wouldn't like you when you're angry. Um, you, you, you're fearless. I love it. Uh, yeah. And well, that, and you can also follow me on Twitter. This is the final thing. You can follow me on Twitter at capital J, little N, little C, little O, little B, little E, little R, little N, one. And, uh, yeah, that's Perfect. about it. I know you probably have uh, other stuff oh, got a, you're doing. a couple articles I'm working on, um, one of which is sort of a, a history of the, uh, you know, the whole we talked about the safety corner thing, so I'm going to write about the good, the bad, and the ugly of converting um, corners to safety and, uh, you know, when it makes sense and when it doesn't. And then um, I'm, we're, soon I should be uh, dropping the all HBCU, HBCU all-time uh, football team. So, as always, it's an honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. I want to thank Isaiah, who is uh, always, you know, a little gadfly. Uh, interesting. Great having, great, yes, always interesting. Great having Montel, uh, Steve, and our special guest, Mr. Kent Lee Platt. So finally, Jim had a playmate on the show. So that was fun. And I hope you two, I don't know if you guys follow each other, but I hope you two get a chance to. Yeah, we follow each discuss. other. Oh, cool. Hope you guys get a chance to discuss metric stuff uh, going on into the future. So we, we will, 
in about uh, less than 12 hours. So I'll be doing the uh, the morning show, and we should have um, uh, Jonah Tull. Uh, we should also have uh, Justin Gamble, a.k.a. Gam Scout, and we may also have Sly Johnson. I haven't confirmed him yet. He's indicated an interest, but I haven't got him firmed down. We have uh, Jonah Tulls and Justin Gamble both confirmed, and we'll do this show again in one week. Thank you once again for your time, your talent, and your attention. <laughs>